I'm proud to say that this video is brought to you by www.ridge.com slash broken silicon, a sponsor that offers wallets with over 30 sleek designs and most importantly, intelligent design. This wallet size matches how big or how small your life is. And of course, don't forget that they also make laptop bags. I have the commuter backpack myself and its overall ruggedness and usability really did impress me. Make sure you use the offer code BROKENSILICON and the link in the description so they know my dog sent you. And it is also brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I will let my guest introduce himself. Hey, I come from Ontario, Canada, and part of the reason why I'm here today is I'm a UX researcher. Uh, so basically what that means is I take different types of users and their experiences um, and just see how they work with different pieces of software. So what behaviors they exhibit, how do they respond to it, do they like it or dislike it? And part of the reason why I'm on Broken Silicon specifically today is I used to work at a AAA gaming studio in Ontario, Canada. It's one of the largest in the world. Uh, without naming names, uh, they're very, very prominent in Ontario. Um, as well, I've had AAA games that I've worked on release, including recent ones and ones that haven't come out yet. Right? This isn't like you used to work there ten years ago. This is very recent. Correct. Yeah, I think since 2018, there's been at least one AAA game that I've worked on released, and there's still more to come out. I think you're a big fan of one of them, or at least one of the franchises. Mm -hmm. um, but I am. Uh, that's basically my synopsis. And I think you, you wanted me to do this in case you forgot. You, your thoughts and opinions are your own right. Even though you're not directly confirming who you worked for, you still, should, you still want to say that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just out of respect to uh, my former employer and just other people that I'm going to kind of speak to their opinions. All these uh, things I will say during the podcast are my own thoughts and opinions. Um, they only represent my personal thoughts and opinions, not the thoughts and opinions of any company I've ever worked for. And I, and I guess another piece of disclosure I would put out just to be clear, and, and, and I feel like I have to say this because all the time, you know, until things are 100% confirmed, even if it's months too early to really comment on a rumor I put out, people will say, well, here's this one article that could mean that one source was wrong. And when it comes to sources, I don't have one source on almost anything I've ever talked about. And that includes Metal Gear Solid, Silent Hills, God of War, Ragnarok. There was not one person that told me about those. And it was not you. 
So I want to say that up front that it's like I am not secretly talking to the person that told me about God of War Ragnarok. I think I think I have to say that up front that not only was it not you, but it wasn't just one person. I would be again, I'd be a madman to say one of those things if just one person told me. Yeah, and a lot of those rumors that you have been dropping recently have been very interesting on my side of things and kind of gets the gears spinning about what's happening over at Sony and a lot of the background deals they're making. And yeah, very entertaining, very interesting to see what you've been dropping recently. Well, I'm glad you have been entertained. I guess let me ask this just to kind of make sure we cover it. When you said UX researcher, I because I was like, why don't I just call you a game dev? And you're like, well, that's not really what I do. <laughs> so uh, I, I looked around and it's like, yeah, there are UX researchers, user experience researchers at all types of software companies, you know, looking to take, look, right? Am I wrong? They look at trends, the competition, they pull together data. And then the people building the products, they're like, this is what we need to focus on. This is what's working and this is what isn't. And you did that for games then, right? Yeah, so right now, um, I still maintain that type of position at a different company, but in games, I did kind of take note of user behaviors when they're interacting with specific types of games, making sure that a designer or developer's vision is actually meeting real-world expectations. So maybe they design a level and intend a player to go through it in a very specific way, or they want to hit different notes. Um, And the way that they're able to confirm that and just kind of make sure that their vision is maintaining some sort of accuracy is while we get some of the people that would actually play this game and see what happens. And a lot of the time you have issues arise or things you did not expect happen in those sessions and you're able to adjust and resolve them so that you're able to kind of meet your creative vision a little bit easier than you would if you were to just I'm um, kind of like the old model, throwing the game out there, and then you find out, oh, we didn't see that um, people would miss this really important armor set because it was right in front of because, but because of the the color of the set mixed with the textures, they didn't see it. That mm. they had to backtrack all the way to the beginning of the level. They're super annoyed. Their whole yeah. experience is ruined. So a lot of that is of my job is to make sure those things don't happen or tend to happen less. And another important aspect, um, and specifically what actually landed me a job at that AAA game developer, was the fact that I had very in-depth knowledge of the gaming industry as a whole. Um, So I've been kind of following it for the better part of 10 years and just Mm -hmm. taking note of different trends. And specifically at that job, I would do competitive analysis and figure out why does game A have such a high score compared to game B or our game. Mm. Why are players um, really responding to this aspect of the game when we also present that aspect in our game? Um, mm-hmm. So why did it work for them and not for us? Yeah, exactly. And just kind of finding your footing in the whole landscape of gaming and where can we fit in? Uh, what can we take advantage of from other games that fit into our game? Hey, is this an important trend that's upcoming? Are we kind of making the same mistakes we did before? All those kind of fuel into the job of a UX researcher. You know, and I think this is something that 
a lot of people may be surprised by actually how much effort doesn't just go into programming the game, coming up with the game, writing the story, throwing it together, but that it really isn't just throwing it together, that there is this, you know, critiquing and editing, not exactly the same as like directing and editing a movie or TV show, but a similar mentality of, you know, at this beat in the movie, we need to get to this scene so we don't lose pacing. And that that's a thing in games. And really, when I started thinking about games in that way the most is when I noticed in Half-Life 2, there's a behind-the-scenes mode you can turn on. And same in Portal. And it was really interesting, like, when I noticed that option and turned it on. Like, I think, yeah, specifically, I think it was like Half-Life 2 Lost Coast has it. And then also Portal does. And I was walking around Portal and I clicked the commentary button that can appear if you let them appear. And it said, so in this scene, we needed people to walk into this room and shoot a portal gun up higher. But the previous few areas had you looking mostly what was right in front of you. And we noticed play testers weren't looking up. So what we did is we put a ladder on the wall because gamers typically see ladders as you need to look up. And then if you walk towards the ladder, the ladder crumbles thus telling the gamer you can't climb this ladder, but hopefully we made you look up so you don't miss how to solve this puzzle. Like that type of stuff, like that's actually how much thought goes into every square foot of some games. And it sounds like you touch that type of decision-making a lot, right? Yeah, um, that's actually a really great example of they're getting feedback from playtesters and user researchers and not necessarily saying... And this is something you always have to really be careful about when you're in UX research is not to give very heavy handed recommendations. You can give, hey, we're encountering this problem like no one's looking up when they need to do so to solve a puzzle. Here are what some other schemes do. But then you let the creative, the devs, the designers, you let them do what they do best, which is making the world, making the game. And you come to these you have the problem of no one's looking up, but then you're able to have this creative problem solving occur where people look up on ladders. Oh, let's just put a ladder there. And that solves the issue. And you can take, that's just one part of one level. And you can just multiply that across a 30, 40, 50 hour game, or even like a journey where it's like a very tight experience and just figure out how to hit those emotional beats perfectly. Like the way the sun pans, the colors, um, the button interactions, the latency of the button interactions, like do we want it to feel weighty or not? There's so much attention to detail in a game that can get lost in translation between design intention, developer intention, and the final product that having playtesting and having UX researchers really helps support that creative vision when done correctly. Yeah, I guess another thing that I want to bring up too is how often, since we're on this subject of like these tweaks you make to the game, how many problems get missed just because people are used to playing the game? Like I remember Killzone 2, they actually had quite a bit of input lag, but the problem was the people making the game got so used to the input lag that they were really good at the game still that by the time they shipped it, they forgot, you know, we probably should have fixed that input lad. And everyone was like, well, they made the guns feel heavy. And and it, when they were saying they fixed it for Killzone 3, and it was funny how everyone's like, well, now the guns won't feel heavy. And they're like, no, most of the heavy feeling is just visual. And then you play it and you're like, oh, you're right. <laughs> it was just bad input lag and they didn't notice because they had been playing the game for four years straight, right? Like how many problems do you run into where 
the devs themselves miss that there's an issue simply because they're so used to playing the same game that it's kind of white noise. I think it it's very common and it's very difficult when you're working on not even just games, but just projects in general to not get tunnel visioned to where this is the only way something will work and this is what I'm used to and this is what feels right. And that's kind of why you need, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say need, but why you should probably have playtesting or just in general, like outside opinions, like what better way of saying, Hey, this input legs bad by getting kill zone one players to come in and actually try kill zone two before everything's set in mm-hmm. stone. Um, a Borderlands three boss, like get people playing that game. Oh, again, they probably did have playtesters to alleviate that issue, but the earlier on you can get kind of that feedback, even if it's at like an alpha or pre-alpha state, the better because it kind of helps alleviate some of that tunnel vision. People are a little, become a little bit more flexible to, hey, maybe we're we're wrong here, maybe we're wrong in other areas. Let's adjust some things. But uh, in general, it's all these different parts kind of work together where your designers, developers play the game, they get past the QA, that gets a build approved to keep being used, and then you bring in the play testers, and then they discover things that QA might have missed, and then just keeps doing this kind of like revolving motion until the game comes out. And even after sometimes the game comes out too, that process continues when you're looking at patching, when you're looking at um, like different title updates or just upgrades in general to the game. And hey, we weren't able to get to this feature in time but let's keep refining it because it'll be really good for a new game plus update or something similar to that end Mm. like it doesn't necessarily end when the development the core development of the game ends it's this process that kind of never stops not if the game's successful at least But uh, so I guess let's we have quite a few reader mails on this one. Many people are excited about this episode and and just it's it was hard to organize the subjects of our discussions into a coherent order. So I guess I'm just going to dive right in now. So Jason Thomas writes in just like you guys can if you support us on Patreon and asks, how much does console gaming trends affect the PC gaming space? It's a little bit more nuanced and complicated to where I don't necessarily think console gaming trends affect the PC gaming space inherently because up until recently, PC gaming, I mean, even to put it lightly, was an afterthought for a lot of developers until Mm. stuff like Steam came along, stuff where the selling and monetization of games on PC started making more sense and it was a lot more tangible. Like, I think the revenue growth in the PC space has been booming over the past five or so, maybe even a shorter span of that time to where now you are taking again the end as i keep saying the end of the ps360 generation because that generation dragged on for so long and at the same time pc hardware was incredibly reasonably priced in like 2010 through 2013 i think yeah i think there was this and that was also the rent like the heyday of steam sales right back then too all of these things combined to where pc gaming became huge right yeah it's had quite the renaissance to where of course, the console gaming trends affected PC because the PC gaming space wasn't really being thought of inherently. Or when you're developing a game, your first instinct when you start making a game years ago is, how can we make this play the best on the best-selling console or just the consoles in general? Like, how do we, uh, mm-hmm. like, how do we get this working there? 
So you can say that that affects PC gaming, but what I'm kind of seeing now and what I've just kind of heard anecdotally from people that work if within video game marketing is PC actually having an impact on the console gaming a little bit as well, mm-hmm. where you're seeing these performance modes and games becoming more prominent, which being able to customize your game experience to your liking, um, at least from my limited experience with PC gaming, I think I've been PC gaming for almost a year, heavily enthusiast for the past six months, is having options. That's the main unique selling proposition of PC gaming. To me, that's something that's very important. And I think that's starting to trickle down into console gaming to where you're seeing just baseline 60 FPS becoming uh, something that's trending (laughs) upwards a lot. I think for the majority of people, the difference between 30 and 60 F is a lot more tangible than 1080p 4K, just from like a viewing distance perspective. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to be, or consumers are able to kind of see or feel that difference more than they would resolution. Um, kind of what I would also elaborate more on this talk is it's not just Sony making this commitment to 60 FPS, but Microsoft has kind of yeah. been very and let's forward. let's be clear, here. you don't work at either Sony or Microsoft. I think yeah, yeah, you can yeah. say that. It's safe right? to say I don't work Which at I think, I, I think I think that was kind of obvious in the beginning, but I think we have to say it because there will be some people that spread conspiracies that I brought on some Sony or Microsoft fan. Uh, no, you work at a third-party AAA dev. You don't have any dog in the fight for either of these consoles. Your opinions are your own and aren't formed by working for either of those companies. Correct. And I should say not work worked previously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, Microsoft has also made a commitment to 4K 60 FPS. And it was part of their initial marketing. I've kind of seen them a little bit quiet mm-hmm. lately on it. Um, I don't know if that's something happening in the back end, um, but both console manufacturers and both platforms are really pushing this idea of 60 FPS. And I think it is because you are seeing that trend more and become more pop- popular amongst mainstream gaming consumers. Um, and it's just going to become a more important factor as that trends more upwards to where I think by mid-gen, you shouldn't see exception naughty dog probably but you shouldn't see any game that's running less than or does not have a 60 fps but i think it'll be incredibly uncommon to non-existent unless you're naughty dog Mm -hmm. well so let me then ask this sam borshers writes in and says hi tom and guest are game developers held back by current consoles and pc performance if there was no limit to the performance of available systems would game developers be able to create breathtaking games that go much further than today's standards? Or are they only capable of similar levels of game improvement with console and PC performance not being a major limiting factor? So I guess what he's saying is if right now, overnight, you just flipped a switch and they had unlimited performance, would they even be able to harness it? I think in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. And I think before PS5 launch and reveal and we kind of got a really good idea of what that ssd meant for games not necessarily pushing out triangle but just like like it should be said like the ssd in the ps5 has the ability and i think you're going to see it in first party sony games to fundamentally change some hangups in game design and development the first party games i think are going to be very impressive and are going to be able to do a lot I don't think you're going to see that as a wider industry trend unless PS5 
just sells astronomically. All their games sell astronomically. Um, new types of game design that we can't even imagine right now take off. Um, different, like a new genres made potentially. Um, like look how much Fortnite disrupted the entire industry of all these major developers. Now everyone's jumping on Battle Royale. Um, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect unless it has like that seismic shift of oh, we have to play games like this now. And it's going to take time to see if that happens. I lean on the side of that not happening, unfortunately, even though, again, from what's being described to me, it's mm -hmm. very exciting. It's just in the wider market, in the wider landscape, it's probably not going to see um, a lot of adoption, unfortunately. Until things catch up. Or at least not a universal exactly. adoption. So like, so then would you argue though, and, and I mean like even not talking about the SSD, I think people talk about, you know, is just kind of going full circle to what I brought up, you know, like uh, a few minutes ago, like is P our consoles holding back PC? I mean, I want to be honest though, when I look at the top GPU on the Steam hardware survey, it's the GTX 1060. Guys, that's about the same performance as the PS4 Pro. You know, the 10, the most popular graphics card is a PS4 Pro that launched in 2016. And the Xbox One X that launched in 2017 is stronger than that. The PS4 base is about an RX 560 in performance, roughly, which, you know, cards around that level of performance, like the 10, GTX 1050 are like, I don't know where it is on the Steam hardware survey exactly. It's within the top five. So, I mean, with the start of this new gen, I don't, I don't even know before the start of this new gen, you could argue that consoles are holding back PC really at all. I mean, certainly the base consoles are probably holding back Cyberpunk a little bit. But I mean, I just think that's something people forget is that most PC gamers don't have a uh -huh. 3080, right? And even now, the top most popular graphics card on Steam isn't stronger than a PS4 Pro. Yeah, like, that's a great point to make bring up just because that is a fact like you're not like i own a 3080 luckily i don't expect game developers to go and like we're gonna make the best 3080 game out there that uses dlss and rtx and just runs perfectly on a 3080 because i it's such a small minute of people where you want your game accessible and frankly purchasable by as many people as you want where if you look at mm -hmm. like what's going to be popular in pc or what is popular in definitely 2020 i know uh, i listened to the episode where you had the um oem laptop manufacturer on and just kind of talking about laptop trends i think most people nowadays mm -hmm. have a tv they have a smartphone and a laptop like you can kind of look at what gps are in laptops or the popular laptops to kind of get a feel of what what is it like what is going to be the most popular pc components I think all the laptops I've kind of looked at uh, for business purposes have had around like a 1650 Ti. Like that is probably yeah. going to be a very popular GPU. So you're going to want to, again, I don't think consoles are holding back PC. I don't think PC is even holding back consoles. The kind of asterisk there is PS5. Like PS5 is all intents and purposes, kind of an anomaly because of that SSD IO to where everything is now holding back the PS5. And I think they're going to potentially successfully... Ooh, there's going to be a lot of angry comments for yeah, that one. <laughs> but I think it's going to successfully happen to where 
you're not going to see the level of game de- like design and level design that you're going to see on first party Sony games that you're going to see in other games, whether that comes to fruition or not. That's again, have to take time to tell it's yeah, it's definitely, I can see the angry comments already rolling in there, <laughs> have their torches, but that is your honest yeah, opinion. You're not exactly. like someone who works at Sony. I mean, I guess, I guess the one thing I would, I would actually push back on is I think you might be underestimating how much PC can just brute force the problem within a couple of years. Like if you're developing a game right now, with the PS5 in mind and PC gaming, you might say, well, our game's not coming out till 2022, right? And so maybe we target the PS5's abilities and then we just say you need an NVMe drive and something as strong as, uh, I don't know, you know, it's like I think people forget that having a locked 60 isn't guaranteed. What they could do is just kind of target the PS5's IO and then say, we're also kind of just targeting a 3900X, but this game doesn't, this game doesn't come out till 2022, right? And so, like, yeah, if you have a 3900X, it, it can certainly stream from an NVMe drive about as well as a PS5. And in two years, you'll be a, a, maybe have Zen 5, you know, or, yeah, I guess 2022 would really be, like, really more than two two years, possibly. Like, you'll have the ability to buy something that's much stronger than the 3900X anyways then. So, uh, and, and, you know, maybe it just doesn't always run at 60. Maybe there's drops to 50 sometimes, but they'll say the problem will sort itself out as stronger and stronger hardware comes available. And I think you saw that a lot around the beginning of the 360 PS3 game, where I think I've come to the conclusion, actually, and, and this was from speaking to one guy who was a developer too, that a lot of the people that blamed bad performance on PC back in 2005 or 2006 on the console ports is forgetting that the 360 had a six thread processor that the PS3 had an eight core with like one of the cores disabled a seven core processor that it really wasn't so much a lazy PC port, except that most PC gamers in 2006 had a dual core and the consoles had at least six threads, you know? And I think they just were like, they'll sort itself out. And some games did sort themselves out. Some games, did not, <laughs> you know, some games like Fallout 3 took forever to run well on a quad core on a PC. So moving on to another reader mail question here. Rory the dog asks, now that the most popular ray tracing capable gaming devices will all be running AMD hardware, the consoles, do you expect there to be a gravitation in game studios to focus on AMD's ray tracing methods over NVIDIA's in order to optimize their games on AMD's less powerful hardware implementation? I think you're assuming it's less powerful, uh, Rory. We don't really know. We won't really know the full story on RDNA 2 versus Ampere ray tracing for years, but he goes on. Or are big game studios more likely to just use minimal levels of ray tracing to ensure the game is playable regardless of hardware until we have a bit more maturity in the hardware ray tracing implementation across the board? Or do you think there will be a split between PC-focused studios and console-focused studios? So, yeah, how would you answer that? I like that he hits on the point of that idea of focused PC, focused console um, and kind of like that NVIDIA versus AMD side of things, because I think with ray tracing in specific, it's about almost buying exclusives, sort of like consoles, where you're seeing some games or land grabs that NVIDIA made for RTX, their solution that they're marking. Like, mm-hmm. This game runs RTX. Like Cyberpunk is coming out December 10th, they say, 
and it's going to have, they say, <laughs> they say, um, yeah. and it's going to have RTX AMD supports coming down the line. Um, but there's been like a lot of marketing with the cyberpunk ray tracing RTX. I think in the first few years, it's going to be a scenario of buying those exclusives. Like Godfall is AMD, like their ray tracing push. Mm-hmm. I think I won't comment on Godfall, but <laughs> but uh, with yeah it's pretty but uh mixed mixed reports on yeah it so <laughs> even though the consoles are going to be running amd ray tracing if they have ray tracing i don't necessarily think that always translates into the pc space again i'm new in looking at the pc space so i don't want to give like definitive opinions but just from kind of what i've been gathering how NVIDIA and AMD compete with each other as far as um, this game has better features if you buy an AMD GPU versus this game has better features if you buy an NVIDIA GPU. I think it's going to be case by case up until a point where, and in your question, you pointed it out where ray tracing isn't that huge performance that it is now, that it's just, it's tessellation. It's just something that you can turn up or down. Um, I know a lot of investment is being put into ray tracing um, at larger studios um, because it is actually a cost-saving measure. Um, it takes a lot of work away. Mm-hmm. Like if you can have AI do the lighting of a game, and you don't have to have someone like yeah pre-bake, pre-bake every like what object, happens in a yeah. Naughty Dog game, and look like those games take forever and they look great, but it. Yeah, they, they look, look good to be fair for especially for the hardware. Yeah, that ray tracing on. does a lot of that heavy lifting. It's just very expensive in terms of performance, and that's again something I think you're going to be seeing balanced for a while up until again it's just it's tessellation. It's just something that's not that big of a performance. It has like a very tangible graphical improvement. And ray tracing has another up. This might have happened with tessellation. I'm ignorant to that if it is, but also saves development time. I think it's worth pointing out too that I I, I think it's going to kind of be a mix of what Rory asked. I think you're going to see most third party studios try to come up with eventually, right? Come up with a solution that works well on both sets of hardware and then run it at low enough levels so that it doesn't nerf performance of both sets of hardware. But then you're also going to see games that just Oh, in this game, the 6800 XT ray traces as well as a 3080, it turns out. Which, if you look at some games like Godfall and Shadow of the Tomb Raider, they they run ray tracing pretty well. It's just, you know, not the same as NVIDIA. But then, I, I specifically, I talked to a couple developers about what's going on with Watch Dogs Legions, because that performance is significantly worse on consoles relative to PC hardware than the other games I was comparing based on, you know, settings and frame rates and resolutions. And it was like, well, it uses NVIDIA's black box ray tracing and it was designed for NVIDIA. So if they would have just turned down ray tracing or not put it in the console version, it'd probably be running significantly better. And I just think you're going to have examples of games that are built around NVIDIA's ray tracing solution, unfortunately, take a bigger performance hit in general on AMD hardware. And then games that aren't, you're going to see you have people going, oh, RDNA 2 performs closer to Ampere yeah, than you expected. I, I think that's a 100% fair assessment. So I guess to really put a nail in one of the conversations from a friend of mine he asks 
Uh, looking at the PS5 and Xbox Series X, is anything holding back creativity anymore, relatively speaking, for this generation compared to the last one? Like, is is there anything holding it back? Or are you just going to go back to the SSD discussion? <laughs> uh, I'm going to kind of circle it, but almost use it more of an example to where you don't necessarily... Again, I'm not developer. I work with developers. But I think a lot of the times we're what limits creativity is not always obvious. Like if you were to tell me, hey, if you put a super fast SSD in this console, it's going to allow for some percentage of creativity gains. I would be like, oh, really? That's I wouldn't have expected that from an SSD. Um, something that's a little bit more tangible to me is VR. It's like, oh, you put on this VR headset, it increases immersion a lot. It's like, oh, that's like, I, I understand how that could happen because again, you're putting on the VR headset, it's a 360 space. I don't want to give a yes or no answer to this. Again, I had no idea that SSDs specifically, if you have a super fast fast SSD, mm-hmm. that, that was going to allow for different experiences. I don't know. Yeah. Me neither, right? I think we were all thinking about load times. And, I, and, and you know, in 2018, one of my first videos that isn't live anymore because it's terrible quality, um, I said, you know, I think SSDs are going to be in the next-gen consoles just because they're going to get to a certain point where it's common sense, which they're just going to get cheap enough. I never thought of it from the point of view of using it as like almost as a third tier of RAM or whatever. I, n- I never thought of it that way. And But when I talked to developers about it, they were all like, oh yeah, and not only that, we were begging Sony and Microsoft to put SSDs in the Xbox One and PS4, and they said they couldn't afford to. And we were like, <laughs> and we were like I guess we'll see you in 10 years then because we can't do anything fundamentally new until that happens. Like apparently if you talk to a programmer, they're like, oh yeah, this is way bigger deal than load times. Yeah, exactly. And just to be fair to the Xbox side of things, um, what they're doing with streaming, that could also mean different games and different genres being conceived too, that we just, mm. we can't imagine them because they have never occurred before. Maybe that's why they're investing so heavily in streaming. Like a lot of people, when Bethesda got purchased, they're like, oh, like Microsoft just got um, Elder Scrolls. They just got Fallout. They just got all these huge IP, but I think something that's gone under the radar a lot is Bethesda had some really um, impressive streaming tech that they had unveiled back in 2018, 2017. Mm. Forgive me, I don't know the exact date, but it they showed it with uh, a demo of Doom. And just kind of what you can see from off screen, it was fairly impressive. And if id Software is working on something like that to work in conjunction with something that's as highly interactive mm. as a fps and as quick as a doom i i think microsoft sees something with the streaming tech that a lot of us are perhaps yeah. missing whether that means like better online functionality but i would also keep my eye on the streaming trends as well to where oh the obvious thing and with microsoft owning bethesda that's interesting and yeah, no one's i haven't heard anyone bring that up before you just did yeah again i think that's something that's really going up like under the radar um and like, i think with streaming the obvious things are like game demos trying to game before you have to download the whole thing um convenience i can play the game wherever i go i don't have to think about downloads or anything like that those are like, just like the faster ssd it's just like oh load times will be quicker i think there's going to be unexpected results from 
um, streaming being pushed so much that we're going to be like, oh, I didn't even imagine that this could happen. Like different types of multiplayer games or again, like I can't say because it's very hard to imagine something that just has never existed before. But there's a lot of moving parts in the industry today, especially in 2020, that makes the industry very exciting just to see which direction it goes, what technologies are adopted, what ends up pushing games further. So switching gears to what will end up being rather a big question for you. So get ready. Um, My Sharona writes in and says, first, thanks for coming on. It is really appreciated. I would like to contrast two industries, music and gaming. With music, the industry seems to have a competent grasp of what good music is, good being defined as successful. And I would like to think that the gaming industry knows what would make a good game as well. Could you describe what the formula for a good game was or is, say, in the 90s versus the 2000s versus what has become today? That's fairly loaded, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think it's a good question. Yeah. Like, what made you define a game as good in the 90s, the 2000s, and now? I think it's... So I think today we have a pretty good grasp of a good game versus a bad game, especially in UX research, because we're asking players before the game release, is this game good or bad? In the 90s and 2000s, I think, and kind of what you see in some of the old guard of the gaming industry is that almost like the one, if we're going to stick with the music analogies, like the one hit Mm -hmm. wonders to where they figure out this formula for a song, song works, it sells a bajillion copies. It's on the radio constantly. And you're just like, oh, let's try to Mm -hmm. turn out another one hit wonder, like, or another hit or another album. And I think with music specifically, over time, you kind of see that formula fail. Um, maybe it had early success, but it kind of ends up failing. I think with gaming, um, some of that is also true to where you have people stumbling upon different game concepts. Like the, when 3D um, camera mm-hmm. got introduced, you had Nintendo uh, with Super Mario, you had Sony with Crash Bandicoot, and then you had not do so well with 3D. <laughs> yeah, but you got to see like that specifically. That example is always very intriguing to me because no one knew yep. what each other was doing, and you kind of saw like, oh, they had like some crossover, some completely different ideas. Like this worked, this didn't work. Um, to where just game dev in general, up until you ha- had these different research techniques and data it was kind of like, okay, this feels right. Let's put it out there. Okay, responded well. I knew how to do that. I'm going to keep doing that. Um, I think that's why you see like Mega Man 1 through however many just being, hey, let's just make Mega Man again and make Mega Man again and again and again and again. Um, A lot of... Let's make 10 Tony Hawks and 10 Medal of Honor. Yeah, exactly. Um, You have people stumbling upon great ideas and people that can execute those great ideas again and again and again. I think in the nineties and two thousands, it was just mostly here's what we think is going to be good. Let's put it out there. And it wasn't until like later in the two thousands, the 2010s and the decade we're in now until they actually did have an idea of this is going to be a good game for a reason X, Y, Z. 
And but you still do get those again that analogy of a one hit wonder. Right. So like what do you think the model is now? Is it not that one hit wonder or like like how would, it seems like that's how you would define it in the past. How would you define it now? If you're a large AAA, you have shareholders to answer to. And at the end of the day, if you have shareholders, you're a corporation, you have to act like a corporation. You want repeatable excess, you want stocks to always go up. Um, so there's definitely in those types of development environments, there's 100% of formula. And I think with some studios and some huge companies in general, you kind of see them getting a little bit stuck in the mud with some of their ideas. Like this idea will always work in perpetuity because it worked with our first game. And you just see those ideas back like over and over like again. Like the, uh, what is it, climbing to the top of a tower in Assassin's Creed? All of a sudden Far Cry needs that and every single game Ubisoft make needs an Assassin's Creed tower. Right, you see those kind of things happening. A lot of where my attention goes to as far as finding great games, not a good game, but I think a good game is very repeatable. You can have a formula for creating a good game. But like those great games that kind of hit those 90s and above have a level of a risk to them because they might not work out. Like Last of Us 2 is probably one of the most divisive games of the past <laughs> decade. Um, that does not happen at a studio that is incubated and doesn't have to answer to mm. shareholders. That would never happen because playtesting would um, change the, like, hey, this isn't coming across how you want it to. Uh, maybe change this about your creative vision or if you want players to react this way or respondable to your game, if you want your game to sell well, do these things. Where that's kind of Again, what happens in those environments where you do have to be safe, you can take risks. Um, don't get me wrong there, but they are very less common and more calculated risks to where you have a Last of Us example or a Hades to where it's just like, hey, let's just take a risk on this roguelite idea that, hey, some people hate the idea of permadeath, but let's just try it out and see if we can make it really good with uh, a gameplay loop, which Hades is probably one of my favorites of the year as such like a really they've nailed like the gameplay loop with that game um that doesn't come to fruition though without but you see if that would have then happened right if you're saying this is is an indie game right mm -hmm. where there's permadeath and they kind of built a game around this concept if that would have been the most successful game in like ea games history you could wonder if ea would certainly go all of our games now need permadeath <laughs> modes instead of realizing the reason it was successful is because they actually did a good job of building it around them. yeah exactly if i could kind of summarize what you've been saying it sounds like you're saying in the past, it was like, well, technology is getting, if I might add my own spin actually onto what you said, technology was getting so much better, so much fa so fast in the 80s through the 2000s that the business model was, well, who's made good games in the past? Let's have them keep stumbling upon great ideas. And now that we're almost to the point where we don't have as many hardware limitations, it seems like companies are using data, like all companies seem uh -huh. to be this day. You might argue over data, overly data-driven to the point where they're just like they keep looking at statistics and going okay uh assassin's creed towers works put that in far cry okay oh they liked it when there was co-op 
and a raid boss put that in, you know, add co-op to, well, it seems like I keep bringing up add co-op to Far Cry, you know, keep adding all of these things and slowly though, and I think you can make this criticism of Sony too and Ubisoft, not all of their games, you know, Sony certainly allows a lot of risks to be taken for sure, but like almost where some of the games start to feel the same, like because it's almost too data-driven. I think what I would say is that Correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying right now games are kind of what makes a good game is they're trying to make sure it's the least risky as possible based on data, right? And that there's kind of still not sure of the best way to make games. Yeah, I think there has to be a really good balance when you do start taking data into account and doing research with a game that you do want to make sure that you are still keeping the creativity and heart of the game intact. Um, and sometimes that's easy to do. Sometimes that's tough to do. And it depends where that studio is, what their financial situation is like. Um, like I think even some, the Cliff Blazinski studio, um, he -hmm. just kept going through ideas and then started jumping on trends. And unfortunately the studio closed down. I think it was lawbreakers that finally did. I might be wrong there, but it was kind of trying to get that battleborn idea. Mm-hmm. And it's just more of like, we need to save ourselves. Like, how can we like, okay, this is super popular. Let's just grab onto it and like, get us out of here. Um, but then maybe that's not necessarily the game that you really wanted to create, but by using, trying to like read the tea leaves and be like, oh, this is, we need to go here because this is what the industry is saying. Sometimes that can have a detrimental effect to the games you make and as well as the the inherent creativity that the game uh, perhaps once had. So it's always like a good balancing act. You know, I think this leads me to a reader mail from Dan, co-host of Broken Silicon. He asks, in your experience, to what extent are AAA games simply made by committee? Yeah, I think we've kind of spoke to that a bit, but with AAA games, it's very dependent on who you're working for and what you're doing. Um, certain studios and certain cultures have a little bit more creative leeway compared to others. Um, but a lot from my experience and just talking to friends uh, who did the same position as I, uh, same, like UX researchers at other developers, um, there can be kind of that um, that bending of users did not like this. It was too hard. Remove it. Like a good example is if you were to throw a bunch of users in front of Demon Souls. I don't think you get Demon Souls anymore if that's like from a AAA company because of how inherently obtuse the game can be and difficult. And but that is also what's very important to that game. That like the difficulty is very important to Demon Souls. So it's it's tough. It can be very tough and it's tough balancing. But, but right, but it sold well, right? Sony famously refused to publish it in the United States because Americans don't like hard games. And then Atlas said, we'll do it. And I think the US version outsold the Asian version. And so it just goes, well, I don't know what playtesters you're using, but the sales spoke for themselves. Millions of copies sold. Atlas was <laughs> Atlas was not a big publisher and they made AAA money for the first time in their history. Yeah. I would you know, say that. So, so are you so sure though, right? That if you would have tested Demon Souls, they a lot of people wouldn't have said it's good because a lot of people do like it. I so 
to kind of clarify, I don't think Demon Souls had playtesters and it released and everyone loved it. But if you were to kind of use like a traditional research mindset or someone that or kind of present that information like, hey, people are finding this game too difficult. Uh, depending on who you present that information to, they could drastically change that game or not, or just turn the knobs too much that it's no longer Demon Souls. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that's, again, why you have to have really good research, really good UX researchers, um, really strong creative minds. Um, because I think Sekiro, it was published by Activision. I think that was one of the, uh, I might be wrong here, but one of the first FromSoft games that was actually play tested before. And Sekiro is a very difficult game, mm. but what... I think it's yeah. harder than Demon's Souls, to be honest. Yeah, I, I just finished Demon's Souls Remake, actually, and I beat Sekiro before it, and I was still unsure, but I, I would agree with you as well, where Sekiro just... Johnny Turbo writes in and says, Hello, Tom and guest. In my experience, gathering feedback from players has been invaluable to improve the games I've made. What methods and strategies have you found most effective for gathering feedback from players what are the things you always make sure to ask players about when talking to them? Thanks. Um, it's yeah, it is very important to kind of gather that feedback. Uh, I'm very biased, obviously. It's my job to gather that feedback from players and users. Mm-hmm. Um, but having someone actually sit down and play the game or play a part of the game to figure out balancing or if your game is good or not, that's the, probably the most invaluable thing. Um, like I know some indie developers that will just like, or even steam early access and stuff like that. Like those types and Hades also comes from a comedian, like that early access mindset of just continually getting feedback from the people that, um, you are trying to make the game for. It's very important. Um, probably the thing you want to make sure when talking to any players about any game is, did you like it? Did you like the game? Did you like mm-hmm. what you played? Like, oh. And have you seen people not even ask that question before? I think you can kind of get away from it too much to when, again, if you kind of go down a rabbit hole of this part of this game is bad and we need a dig, but you might lose sight of the fact that, hey, they actually enjoyed it, though. Like, it's almost like Mm -hmm. uh, developers and designers tend to take stuff like to heart, which is very, it has pros and cons. Um, And some of the, the cons to that is that you can hyper focus on the negative instead of focusing on the positive and asking players what they like or dislike. So even if someone says they dislike a game, but there are parts of your game that they really enjoy, hey, they enjoy some parts of your game. Let's, let's bring those up a bit. But that's probably the most, it's an obvious answer, but it is probably the most important question to ask to people playing your game. Did you enjoy what you played? Well, yeah, and I look at games like Anthem that they seem to continue to try to save, even though if you would have asked me before the game come at, came out, I'd look at that and go, what is that? Just not Destiny or not The Division 2? Who's going to play this? You know, like, I, and, and, and you almost wonder if they should have asked earlier in the game, like in the development, like, is this doing anything notable besides adding jetpacks to Destiny or something? <laughs> right? You know, I... I, I don't know if that's an example you can touch on, like when getting feedback on games, has there ever been times during a development process where you realized, oh, we should have asked core questions about if this game will ever be fun much sooner? Uh, yes. 
Um, kind of anecdotally, <laughs> uh, because the one that comes to mind is a game I joined the company I used to work for later in development. And they're just kind of how and kind of how that the UX research process was handled for that game was very latent. And um, mm-hmm. my manager would just kind of like give me a lot of these teaching moments along the process. Like, hey, this is something we were supposed to do at this stage in development. But because we're doing it later on, here are the compromises we have to make. And these are the things that are wrong with the game that we cannot change anymore. But if we were to actually go back a year or two, have this data and information, we could have fixed it. And this is why in project B and C, we are doing that. So that doesn't reoccur over and over again. Mm. So I think working on a game where that was occurring often really gave me a really good perspective on how important it is to get that information early on, especially if it can be something that's very detrimental to the game. Well, yeah, and I think that there's this, I think this is where, I mean, I think it's actually a character flaw I have, where I'm very much so, hey, I set out to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick to it. I'm not turning back. And I think I think that some of these studios should just have the character to realize some projects are best to be canceled. Like I, the, the example that no one will ever remember that much because it was never made is like Housemark working on Returnal right now, which I think looks really interesting. But before that, they were working on a Battle Royale game that they decided to cancel halfway through development because they said, no one's going to play our other Battle Royale game. Everyone's playing Fortnite. Every, you know, everyone's playing what, uh, there's another one I'm forgetting. Oh, I think Apex Legends. Yeah, that was what I was thinking of. Um, every, you know, everyone's playing DayZ. No one's going to play the fourth one, just like no one played Firestorm and Battlefield 5. Um, and, you know, I, I think more studios need to realize that they can just say, oh, we've spent $20 million, we can't lose this, and just realize, well, you're, you might be about to waste $100 million, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and Housemark definitely came up when we were talking about Cliff Blazinski before, to where I'd be interested to see where Housemark is at a stage of financially where they were ready to jump ship to, and to be fair, they're actually still doing it with Returnal, but instead of going into the twin stick shooter space, going into the battle Royale space and like, okay, we're going to make a battle Royale. It's like, Oh, what's happening? Like when I first heard that, I forget if it was a leak or if it was a legitimate story out of Housemark, but I was, I started getting worried about Housemark just because those are, (laughs) That type of jumping on the bandwagon usually happens when um, studios are desperate financially. Um, hopefully, Returnal turns out. I'm also interested in it as well. Um, it looks very, yeah, it looks very unique, and I'm hoping that mm-hmm. it kind of looks like Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, exactly. The game. Like I, I actually really enjoy that. Yes, that movie. Which great. I love that movie. Yeah. So <laughs> sign me up, right? <laughs> Yeah, when I heard they were working on a battle royale game, I just, I literally said, I think I was driving, you know, because I was listening to a podcast, they were talking about it. And I was like, I literally said out loud, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? You know, and it's the same with Battlefield 5. I actually liked Firestorm and Battlefield 5, but, you know, it, not, not a lot of other people did. And you can't even get a full room in there. I, 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 you can't even get a game to start. You can't get 64 people to play that game mode. Everyone's just playing the usual conquest and rush and stuff. And it's just like, 
God, how much money just went into, wait, what are we doing? Everyone's just going to play Fortnite. People don't come to Battlefield to play yeah. Fortnite. You know, I, it's, and these are hard lessons these companies need to learn. But so let me switch gears again, kind of talking about difficulty levels in games. So Rafazaya writes in, I hope I said that right, and says, as an older dad gamer, I come to love story mode in some games so I can burn through games in the little time I have. But often it just seems a bit stale. It seems like there's room for improvement beyond game enemies shooting them like stormtroopers or not, or having too much difficulty for the time I have. Do you have any thoughts on how difficulty levels might change or at least should evolve? I, I definitely think that there is improvement to be made there. A few games last gen, Tomb Raider is the one that jumps out a lot to me to where you would actually be able to tune your difficulty on the different uh, types of gameplay within Tomb Raider. So if you really like the mm-hmm. combat or need to combat difficulty up, but you weren't that great at puzzles or didn't want to deal with puzzles, you can adjust those independently from one another. I think that concept or that idea should probably be investigated a little bit more for uh, players uh, like the the reader sent in or the, the reader mail, um, just because I think think that's not investigated enough it's underdeveloped where there's certain games to where there's i think everyone's experienced this where you love one part like uh spider-man mm-hmm. and those uh the original 27 was it 20, 2018 the original 28 spider-man with those stealth missions mm. i wanted to skip them every time <laughs> Or just people, make them yeah. easier and not have to like go through the like the motions of them. Um, they alleviated that with Miles Morales, thankfully, because um, I think they got a lot of feedback on those stealth missions. But being able to tune different parts of gameplay, I think, is something that should be investigated more. Especially with, I'm not one of those people that are like, oh, like Sekiro and Demon's Souls shouldn't have like difficulty options or tuning. Um, I, and even in that same breath, there's a lot of intent that goes behind those decisions, but there's a lot of room to work with difficulty and there's a lot of work in accessibility happening right now. Um, that's really promising. And I hope that trickles down and I think it has a little bit, but I hope it kind of trickles into difficulty options a little bit more too. Yeah. I mean, like an example well, one game that lets you tweak difficulty exactly how you want as well is Mountain Blade Bannerlord. They let you tweak the AI, the health of the AI, the combat ability of the AI, and your own health. And I came to the conclusion that I thought it was absurdly annoying to have one random arrow kill my character sometimes. And then that just means, well, I can't command my army. You know, when I play Bannerlord, I'm playing it to command the army for the RTS aspects in addition to the combat. So what I did is I said, yeah, double my character's health because I think that's frankly unfair that they can just cut the head (laughs) off the snake when it's a game about me leading armies. But then I also made my character, my army soldier's AI have no advantage compared to the enemy. And I'm like, if I lose, it's because I screwed up my tactics, right? And that's what I wanted it to be about. And, and, you know, actually, here's a funny example of the Stormtroopers. I remember Metal Gear Solid 4 had like six difficulty modes or something. And the bottom difficulty mode was literally something called, like the subtitle was four people that just want the story. (laughs) And I noticed, 
I, I did a playthrough just zooming through it in that mode. And it, uh, I think every gun one hit <laughs> killed people. <laughs> like, and it came to the point where I was like, well, this is a little excessive. I think even someone who's playing this for the story might want a little bit of a difference between guns damage. It, it does seem like a lot of games don't know what to do with difficulty where they always are too hard in some areas. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, my opinion is that there should just be one difficulty mode. And if you're finding most people think one section's stupid, maybe that section is stupid. <laughs> you know, like, like what you need to come to the conclusion of, I think, is how is this game meant to be played? Are some areas meant to be harder? Don't add this knob because it's like in Call of Duty where you have the hardest difficulty. All of a sudden you got someone throwing grenades like it's a machine gun, just grenade, grenade, grenade. Uh-huh. That's not fun. That, that's, that's not harder. That's just stupid. You know, and I think uh, that, and, and then I think if you want to add a story mode, then just focus on that story mode and normal mode. Because I don't think, I think adding the knobs makes it very hard for developers to have the experience that it's meant I to be. I think the idea of a singular difficulty level works if everyone was kind of on an even playing field. But a lot of games, especially AAA, you have to keep in mind that this might be the first time someone ever plays a video game. I know that's like an extreme example, mm-hmm. but those are things you kind of have to keep in mind when making a game. Um, and then as far as like removing sections too, if the tuning aspect of difficulty is very challenging, and I think that is part of the reason why you don't see too many options being provided in most games. It's And even those differences, mm-hmm. like usually you have one difficulty that's really finely tuned and then the other ones are very coarse adjustments on that tuning yes. where you're just like, this feels right, but this feels off. Um, it's very, very, very challenging to nail those aspects, um, which is, again, kind of why I go back to that. I think that slider system, I think it, that's that has like a step or two in the right direction of I want the enemies to feel like the enemies on hard, but I don't like these puzzles are just annoying. I want like turn them off or like turn them a little bit lower so that I can get the solution quicker, whatever perhaps that is, or driving mechanics. Um, like in like for a GTA example, like how quickly your wanted level raises. Like like I think there's <laughs> I think there's some room there that is better. It's still going to be. It's still challenging to tune those things, but I think having the user tune them it, themselves kind of helps a little bit. Okay. As far as kind of like the different difficulty levels a developer makes, sometimes that even what the intended difficulty of the game is also can vary. So some studios might balance or tune normal to be the perfect way to play their game, but other developers balance hard that way. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's like just Wolfenstein. so, it's very inconsistent <laughs> right now to where I think in general, the difficulty has to be a little bit more normalized. I don't know. I don't have the answers there, but there's work to be done. No, but you're right. Because uh, to, to be fair, um, I'm play, me and uh, Dan are playing Wolfenstein Youngblood right now. And we like the difficulty spikes are just, we're like, what's happening? All of a the sudden, they're just throwing 10 like tier three mech suit soldiers at us with laser arms. And it's like, what? Like, we came to a section where we're like, this is literally impossible for us. We give up. 
when we just went to another mission. Like, like, and like, and remember, like, keep in mind, like, I'm I'm not a pro gamer, but I I'm the guy arguing, don't you dare make Demon Souls easier. And yet here I am in Wolfenstein Young Blood going, This is ridiculous. Who played this? This is this is not fair. This is way too hard. Like, if I say it's too hard, it's hard. I mean, this is Yeah, ridiculous. I've heard that about Wolfenstein. And I, it has completely turned me off from it. Like the difficulty spikes in any game are just like, I like, I like a ramp. It's, and right, it's the spikes. You yes. see my argument though? The problem I have when you have different difficulty modes is it feels like there will be some sections that will be too easy and some sections that are too hard. I think the problem is, is you just, I don't think it was the difficulty settings. I think you just shouldn't have thrown 10 laser mech suits <laughs> at me out of nowhere. Yeah, and there's, games have been a little bit more flexible with it lately to where, um, either your difficulty mode doesn't affect trophies or you can change it at any moment so you can balance moment to moment gameplay with the difficulty. I don't, those aren't really um, smooth fixes or something that I think most people end up doing. I know I don't, even if I'm hitting like a wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Montagna writes in and says, Dear Tom and guest, I have a general question about how developers make decisions when conceptualizing, balancing, and monetizing games, why they make these specific decisions, and how they impact the experience of different demographics in the player base differently. This is a big question. He's already making it clear from the start. Because I'm a college student, so I do have extended periods of time when I can game, where I would prefer competitive multiplayer games that I can learn over time, have interesting asymmetric mechanics, and the freedom to play at a slower pace and win by making good decisions based on the player's extensive knowledge of the game. I have no objection towards the monetization of cosmetics or even of guns and shooters if they are difficult to pick up and they have a place in the meta and are balanced. However, what most devs seem to do is make their games more fast-paced and more quote-unquote balanced by removing asymmetrical aspects, even when the specific theme of the game favors it. Battlefield Five and faction-specific weapons, for example, are an option you can enable. And what I've heard is that, unlike me, the majority of the game's player base consists of people who not only have less time to play and learn the game, but also much less time to devote to an individual game session, leading the devs to make the decisions listed above. Are these decisions really justified by this fact? Does attracting a larger player base require a general simplification of the game? And is that a good metric for success in metrics beyond earnings of a specific quarter? What are the incentives and how does each studio publisher strive to meet them? Hope the these are trends that are exhibited well beyond the genre of shooters, but it is an example. Hopefully, I've illustrated my point. And I will add on, Montana. I am one of the few people that has faction-specific weapons enabled in Battlefield 5 and insist on the Japanese only using Japanese weapons. Um, but yeah, go on. Uh, I, how would you touch on all of these things he's saying, like kind of... And I have noticed this, how over time, less and less asymmetrical game modes are appearing in games, unless that's the whole point of the game. I think from the perspective of an asymmetric multiplayer game, it's very hard when you're trying to, for that asymmetrical game to be balanced inherently. And even, it can sometimes even struggle with learnability like your ability to learn a game pick it up very quickly start playing and um the developer and the game has grabbed your attention and you're going to be repeatedly playing if at least from my experience with some asymmetrical games i evolve i played one of the few people that played evolve mm. um a lot of the time that kind of asymmetrical multiplayer experience was frustrating when you didn't have teammates 
um, that also knew which role to play. And even as in that game, playing as the monster, I forget what they called it, but like the monster. Yeah. I've played it before. The monster, I always got Shrek. Yeah, exactly. Like, playing as a monster is very, very easy because you can almost rely on no one being coordinated in that game. So, no, I, oh, I had really? the opposite experience when I played. I couldn't, I couldn't get catch oh, a break. <laughs> there you go. I would, I think most of the time I would only win if I was monster rather than the people trying to take them out. Mm. But I think the main reason why I don't see a lot of them is the fact that it's it was so reliant on team behavior. I think you actually seen a little bit of team behavior come back with stuff like Apex implementing. Um, non-verbal communication methods. I think that's a huge innovation right now in mm. multiplayer. I love that. Yes, because most people will not use a mic period and will not and yeah. I don't yeah, want to hear them either. <laughs> Shut up. And then even more so, people are very unlikely to talk to people that they've never met before. Um so having those non-verbal communication methods help a lot, but I think like brass tacks, this, the asymmetrical multiplayer games and multiplayer modes, they probably, again, I'm ignorant to the battlefield five example, but you probably, the developers on the back end and the publishers, the people that fund these games aren't seeing the level of engagement they want to see in these modes. And you can Hmm. contribute that to different behavior factors. But at the end of the day, if you're not seeing something you enjoy in games, um, in that even that same gay game go forward, it usually means that it, that experiment or that mode did not work out for the developer. They don't want to invest in it anymore because they can invest in other aspects to get themselves a better return. So, well, and he kind of brought that up too, where he and me like using German weapons with the Germans, which the game has so many guns that you still have like four of each type of weapon to choose from. You know, like, and that's why I do it because I just think it's fun to use English guns if I'm the English. Like, most people aren't doing that. And a lot of people are paying to just auto unlock every weapon so they don't have to unlock them. Um, so I, I guess that's what you're kind of saying too is it's like, well, while we may like them, well, a lot of the most hardcore probably beg for them. That's not, unfortunately, what most people are asking for. And, and, but I don't, I don't think it's really, um, he's, re- I don't think he's specifically referencing, asymmetric focused games and being asymmetric to themselves like evolve like you brought up that game is built as an asymmetric experience but examples i would bring up is like in socom combined assault slash socom three my favorite game mode was convoy so this wasn't a game built around asymmetric gameplay but they would have game modes and maps where one team might have extra jeeps than the other team right or one team has a tank and the other doesn't but they did their best to balance it so you have ways of taking it out. You know, and like in, in the game Convoy, like one team literally had to escort these transport trucks to locations, pick up supplies, defend them during like an ambush in the desert or something, and then get out of the area. That's entirely asymmetrical, even though the game isn't built around it. And I think you used to see that a lot in older Battlefield games as well, where one team, like the Chinese, would have more tanks than the Americans and an extra helicopter. But the American helicopter that they got was stronger. I know it's hard to balance, but I always thought the maps that like really gave different teams different types of weapons and like D-Day landings, where it wasn't just, you have five tanks, you have five tanks, equal is equal. 
I always found those maps the most engaging because of how different the gameplay was. It wasn't just everyone on both sides scrambling to do the same thing. You had people doing entirely different things to try to I win. think, so after hearing that, I think it kind of goes back to how difficult that would be for someone to learn and that potentially impacting how popular that mode is or even how fun that is. So if you've kind of seen those different modes disappear, start going away a little bit, or you're not seeing new games with those types of modes, I think it has a lot to do with those factors. I have very limited experience looking at the multiplayer game scene, um, but Mm -hmm. just from a behavior standpoint and kind of extrapolating some other knowledge from other areas of gaming and player engagement, I'd probably chalk it up to that more than anything. Well, it's the holiday season, and you know what that means. Lots of travel for this holiday season, and hopefully for a more open 2021. I bought a studio laptop for mobile editing, and of course... Well, it didn't come with an open license of Microsoft Office, and those can be very expensive, especially for the professional version. But luckily, I was able to get Microsoft Office Professional for a reasonable price from cdkoffers.com. Go to cdkoffers.com and use the promotional code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off an already cheap list price of Windows 10 Professional. Then all you do is click on your email account, go to user center and then my purchase orders to get the code just use this code with a normal download of windows 10 professional from microsoft's website all right links in the description let me see here so let me move forward here a little bit um moving on kind of to gaming trends uh, let's just go with the reader mail. Angelo says, what trends and habits going on right now surprise you in the gaming industry? It's huh. a good one. Something that's very surprising is the adoption of Fortnite as a marketing tool and not just like <laughs> gameplay. Like, and like, like unveiling Big Navi and Fortnite? That, having Travis Scott concerts and having this huge set piece developed and created around that um roblox i believe is doing something similar but this kind of this alternative method of monetization in these freemium games where it's not just in fortnite the v bucks and cosmetics it's not like the loot box just the loot boxes it's not just the battle pass but also having it be a marketing channel for like these huge juggernauts. I believe Marshmallow also was on Fortnite at one point. I forget the Roblox performer, but that is Mm -hmm. something that I never really foreseen. Like I think everyone's kind of experienced in game advertisements, like baked in like Mm -hmm. Death Stranding had like the monster energy stuff. I believe we even talked about like a monster energy ad in Gears 5 previously. Um, yeah, offline in a discussion. Yeah, yeah. those I think are kind of or like constant advertisements in Metal Gear games where they always have <laughs> yeah. ridiculous game things. In there. Yeah, like I think those are fairly obvious that they would happen. Like um, in the sports games too. Like I think UFC caught a little bit of controversy because they had like the boys ads plastered all over the different rank. Like so, I I watch UFC and 
what mm-hmm. they did in game was almost exactly what you see during a UFC event, where it's just like the advertisement before the ring announcement, the advertisement before that, but they're actual ads. Um, mm. I think though that's kind of that's kind of getting a little bit too, if you even want to call it realistic for me. But in the in the freemium <laughs> games, having them as huge marketing channels, having them as like huge event, like that's like one of the new theaters, like. The new theater is Fortnite. Like, oh man, play at Fortnite, you'll get X amount of money and X amount of views, and your album will do this amount better, or your movie will do like I think Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan also took advantage of Fortnite and did like some kind of screening. So it's it's <laughs> for tenant or what? Yeah, and I don't think it was te- I think they showed Inception. I'm sure someone will correct us, but they oh, had okay. like some kind of weird screening going on, but that is not something I really ever foreseen. But now that it's here, I don't think that's going away. And I think you probably will see um, developers and publishers, especially like huge juggernauts in the industry, try to make their own channel for events, for marketing, not even just to push their own products, but just have that as revenue to fund this freemium game and increase engagement because like it's can be super lucrative and i haven't looked too much into the financial details of how much travis scott paid to be in fortnite or how much fortnite paid travis scott to be there or like the back end how many players um increased that month for fortnite but that's something i yeah again not something i ever foreseen happening I think it's here probably to stay. I don't think that's it, going I mean, away. I don't know why. It, it, yeah, I don't know why it wouldn't be. I, I would just say when it comes to ads and games, what annoys me, specifically the Gears of War Five thing, I have no problem walking around in, let's say, a Watchdogs, and on the billboards downtown, they show an actual ad, but I I don't really have to watch it. It's actually part of the design in the background. That type of stuff makes a lot of sense to me, um, and, and and I think it's it's quite literally common sense that they would try to make some money doing that. Go for it, you know. I don't care. But what annoys me in Gears of War Five is when I boot up the game. Uh, no, but literally an ad stops me from playing the game. <laughs> And I thought I paid for this. I guess not. I guess I guess I don't own this if I buy uh, a, a Microsoft game anymore. Um, that's what annoys me. Or in Death Stranding, for some reason, his con- his canteen was filled with monster. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> super trying to me. Again, monster. Monster seems to be in a lot of these ones I don't like. I'm noticing. <laughs> um, and Death Stranding is one of my favorite games of all time. But I was. But that's what made it all the more jarring this narrative experience and they're like drink some monster energy. I was like, how much did they pay for this? I hope yeah. it was, I hope they paid a lot for this placement. Cause it's just ridiculous. You know, <laughs> like that's or like, like what if an Assassin's Creed Odyssey, all of a sudden you just start having Pepsi ads show up somewhere that might as well have been what happened in uh death stranding. Cause it just makes no sense for the time period or place. Yeah. I think with the death stranding and just Kojima games in general, kind of playing around with, advertising i think it it kind of comes from kojima's appreciation for western society and just like pop culture he loves all of that i i kind of think he sees it as an inside joke it might also be that too like he's a very unique creative guy so i wouldn't put that past him but as far as like as far as immersive advertising goes i think 
I'm in the same camp as you to where if it's just like I'm in GTA and instead of like, although the parody ads in GTA are quite funny, some of them like are pretty good. I wouldn't mind seeing an immersive ad. It's when it's super jarring. It's um, almost mobile-esque where like the Gears example where it's preventing you yes, from playing the game. like a mobile yeah, game. I think that's when it kind of goes a little bit too far. Uh, Guberian writes in and says, how has the mainstreaming of video games affected the industry as a whole? Because I think you can say they're fully mainstream now. I think this is something me and Dan are going to talk about in a later episode. But just how like, even just like five years ago, you would see celebrities on late night talk shows like he plays games and we're like, everyone plays games. And and now as of this year, you have, what is it? Henry Cavill, the guy who plays Superman and DC movies. He's just like, I don't know if I got his last name wrong. Um, he's just like building a gaming PC on Twitter and it's like no one bats an eye if you play games anymore. I, I would say now it truly is mainstream in the culture. Yeah, I would say so as well, especially like this year, game spending is astronomical. Mm. Um, like PS4, Xbox One did better than any final, like they, like usually previous gen consoles die the same year that the next gen console yes. comes out and that did not happen this year. It's definitely an anomaly, but I think that speaks to how much people are spending in the industry. So I kind of take a little bit more of a financial perspective with this mainstreaming of video games to where I think you get a lot of people interested when there's money to be made. Um, look at Google with Stadia, Amazon with Luna. Um, I think those are very far out bets. I think they're ready to lose money on both of those investments for the next 10 to 15 years before they're successful. Um, but when anything really gets mainstream and starts having like a huge economy around it, you get these players from outside of that industry involved in trying to make their buck. Um, and again, kind of to go back to previous conversations we've had, that idea of being accountable to shareholders. Um, I think you see a little bit more of that coming down the way, but at the end of the day, more eyes on gaming is better for gaming, even if it's not necessary. Is it? Because that was something me and my brother were talking about the other day. Like this idea, I always see that too. Like whether it's this or it's like, oh, you'll be like, I hear it about other things like, oh, more people getting into Dungeons and Dragons is good for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, surprise, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons, everybody. I know <laughs> PC Dork will also play Dungeons and Dragons. It's a huge revelation. Um, but like, you know, uh, you know, but like, is it is it good for Dungeons and Dragons? I think they make enough money. Is it good for gaming if there's more gamers? I think the acceptance of it is not this nerd fest. Again, right? They, even as far as just five years ago, they were like, "Oh, that's nerdy." It's like, is it? Everyone plays games. Yeah i I think it's better. I think it's better for the smaller developers because right now, a developer, sure. like a small indie developer, has to have a certain. If you just want to say like the gaming audience, they have to have a certain percentage of the gaming audience buy their game in order for them to be successful. And the more people you have in that gaming industry the less that percentage of the audience needs to buy your game. Um, we're not talking about like millions of copies of sold for these indie developers, but it's the more people you have there to sell your game to, 
the better off you're going to be as especially the smaller side. So I definitely see it perhaps improving things for the smaller developer. Now, I can definitely see it going the other way, though, to where it starts only benefiting those bigger developers because they mm-hmm. just kind of act as a vacuum and suck everything out. Like, I think a lot of the moves that THQ Nordic are making with all their like their rapid <laughs> purchasing is actually preparing for the next... What do they have, like, 60 games in development, according to them? I think they... Hundreds. I think that might... Like, yeah. <laughs> We'll see what happens. Apparently, uh, just get ready because in three years, people, we might have a situation where every week there's a THQ game coming out. I think a lot of their movies are actually preparing for the next five, ten years Mm. to where gaming publishers are like record companies where they're constantly licensing out songs. You're going to be licensing out your games to different services. So even though it's, it's definitely odd that this one publisher is buying all these studios under these different umbrella publishers. I think it's, I read into it a little bit and just see that, oh, they're preparing for down the line to where you're not necessarily paying for a game, but you're paying like as far as here's my $60, $70, you're streaming the game and you are not the mainstream. I'm not talking about like, people that are still going to be using hardware and stuff like that. But when it, when the industry goes from, I think right now, 200, 250 million, when it goes to 1 billion in perhaps 10 years, like how are those Mm. 750 million people going to be playing games? Like console hardware, whether it's, or hard gaming hardware in general is very cost prohibitive and you don't really get to that 1 billion number by charging people even $300 for a console, you get it from not charging at all to very little. And I think when you're looking at the mainstream of video games and where it could kind of like the suction happen is just with the gaming industry becoming more mainstream and more people playing games and stuff like that, you definitely have a chance for those smaller developers um, to make a name for themselves and have more opportunity than they perhaps have now, but it can also swing the other way as well. So it's, I'm, it's the next 5, 10, 15 years of the gaming industry are probably going to be the most important for its longevity. So piggybacking on you know this THQ subject, I actually think this leads perfectly into talking about the next subject, which is kind of the future of AAA games. You know, I think one way I would read into what THQ is doing, which I think it's an interesting thing to bring up. I think most people just stop at the surface level and go, oh, they're just buying everything they can, you know, and then they just stop talking about THQ. I think you could argue that the future of AAA gaming they're planning for is one where it becomes more AA again. Like you see, and, and this is, you know, obviously just kind of my opinion to a certain extent, but so many mega publishers in the gaming space right now seem to be insisting on making the next Fortnite, on turning a franchise into more of a Destiny 2 instead of just making a solid 30, 40-hour game. And kind of with the exception of Sony's first-party games, no one... It's becoming rarer and rarer to find a AAA game that's just a solid kind of like, you know what I mean... Half-Life 2, Doom, you know, just a solid 20 to 40 hour game that you play from start to finish, doesn't overstay its welcome, 
and is fun. Yes, it is not a 1,000-hour open-world game or an MMO that you can play for 10,000 hours, but it has really good graphics, it's really polished, and you had a fun time for, say, whatever amount of time. I think as the gaming industry gets bigger, we could go back to this model, hopefully, where there's a lot of games like that. And maybe that's what THQ is preparing for, is churning out a bunch of AA games again. I I don't know. I mean, like, what do you think about the future of AAA games? I mean, offline, we've talked about how so many of these franchises from publishers are trying to just become another Destiny or Fortnite. Yeah, I think as far as where you're going to see those mainstream trends go and whether there's a space for the double A again, I do think that's true and kind of harkens back to the more people willing to spend money within the gaming industry to where you get like a chance for those indie developers, single A developers and double A developers more pe- like you don't have to attract a like a huge percentage of the gaming audience in order to make a successful game hopefully in that 5-10 year span to where you can hey let's just spend 20 million dollars on this game and our return for this game is going to be 30 million and we're able to easily achieve that because of how many people are willing to pay for a game I think where I, mm-hmm. I think why you saw like THQ go away is there just wasn't a sustainable amount of people doing that sort of thing, not willing to either it didn't hit a quality bar for them. Um, they weren't willing to spend, uh, I think. Well, yeah, because I think I would kind of push back and say, what do you think about this insistence on making these $200 million games that? A lot of them are just falling apart. Like, dude, Watch Dogs Legions is getting panned. And that's not like a Fortnite clone. But like, it seems like they just insisted on, you know, I think the Watch Dogs story itself is an example of, from the beginning, they said, you know, Ubisoft goes, we only make franchises that are meant to be trilogies. We want Watch Dogs to be the next Assassin's Creed. And it just never was. Watch Dogs 2, although that one actually got good reviews, did not sell well. And it looks like Legions is already half off uh, pretty quickly after it was made. You know, I think, uh, how much do you think AAA devs are just learning the wrong lessons in the way I would argue THQ did? You know, every, you know, other people, Grand Theft Auto Online so successful. Destiny 2 is so successful. And they say, well, we got to have that instead of maybe saying, well, maybe we need to go in the other direction. I think so many more of these studios need to go in the other direction. Just make a $100 million, 40-hour game that sells 5 million copies and stop trying to sell 20 million. I think it has more to do with a game's engagement. And engagement as a factor in how much people value a stock or a company it has become much more important over time. Like uh, You see huge... And a, a good example of this... Um, is with social media, with Twitter, Reddit, Facebook. Um, I recommend everyone watch The Social Dilemma just so you can kind of see how things over time have Mm -hmm. shifted towards engagement and trying to keep you in-app. I think what perhaps some of these companies are trying to do is maybe not even putting a monetary value on it, um, 
But as far as how do we make a very engaging game? Like, what are factors that make a game engaging? Like, why is Fortnite very engaging? How can we replicate that or try to make uh, a, f- a game Fortnite level engaging? And um, I think you and I have also discussed like the winners and losers mentioned on like, not everyone's going to win this. I think in social media too, mm-hmm. like, I don't think all those companies are going to win or have like the most intention. No. And, and you know, you see people talking about all of these new social media apps and it's like, well, they're a year old. Let's see if they're even here in three years. I mean, mm-hmm. mine died, you know, like they're not all going. Yeah. To- but I think a lot of these companies are after engagement and taking their ideas and trying to figure out different ways of making them engagement and investigating ideas that have worked in the past, like Apex Legends, like the Battle Royale example, like, hey, Battle Royale seems to be engaging. Can we make an like Apex Legends engaging and attract an audience and have that audience keep returning so that they spend more money? Because again, engagement, whether it's microtransactions, like, data that you can use in future games is very valuable to these companies and just the way that the social economy or just the economy in general is going towards engagement is a very important factor for investors so if you're able to say title a has the most engagement out of any title in the franchise and this is what we did and we invested 50 million dollars but look at our engagement that looks very good to investors compared to perhaps, hey, we made this 30, 40 hour game that when people were done with it, they sold or stopped playing. Well, I think it looks good to investors in the short term, but I just think maybe, again, right, you see this fallacy of engagement means this is the best thing. It's like, well, yeah, but that engagement was already spent on another thing you were looking at. Why are you so sure you can duplicate it? And the amount of money it would take to duplicate the engagement that was got out of a game like Mm -hmm. Minecraft or something, it's like, you know, you understand, guys, it's not easy to duplicate that. And that if you spend half a billion dollars trying to launch this gaming franchise that is aiming to duplicate the success of Assassin's Creed, that in effect, you could actually be making a far riskier move than making five $100 million games where maybe one fails, but the other four make a profit. Because you're basically putting all of your eggs in one basket is the argument I'm making. And there will be winners and losers. There will be anthems and there will be destiny twos. And you're basically... Instead of having a situation where you flip five coins and, hey, three of them turned heads, we're still okay, you're basically betting on flipping a coin once, and yeah, it might work out for one company, but another may just go out of business. And that's what I think that's what happened to THQ. They decided, well, everyone's flipping one coin at a time, so we should try, and they weren't as good at it, and it, it was a mistake. Yeah, like, there's something I inherently disagree with there. I don't think it is too sustainable or unsustainable i don't see it leaning too far one side of the other at this point for either situation yeah i think this is more of like probably a five-year retrospective that we'd probably get a good idea of all these people that rushed into like a Fortnite model how did that actually turn out is Fortnite still around um did investing in destiny 2 all those years actually mean something good for the developers and the publisher did that end up turning to be a flop and we just i don't think now someone who's in economics and 
goat dives into stocks regularly probably will know better than I, but at this point, I can't really, I don't think there's really a conclusive answer there yet. Oh, I would say that I'm not sure I'm right because it's not been proven right yet, but this is a fear I have moving forward where you see so many people asking why are all of these games, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, right? Why are all of these games so long? Why do you expect me to play this for a thousand hours? I'm a busy person. I don't have time for this. Um, And it's like, well, because when we make these 1,000 hour games, they're so successful. And it's like, well, you look at Watch Dogs and I go, are they? You know, I just think it, I'm not saying I'm right, but I do think it's a question people need to start asking where it's like, is it actually, because I think what's happening, and this is just my own, you know, argument here that I've been thinking about lately. I think the argument these trip, a lot of AAA developers would make is that, oh, well, we're being less risky. We know we're not being as innovative. We know we're not being maybe even as divisive in a good way like some other games are being right now. But that's because we can't afford to fail, so we're being as safe as possible. But I almost think there is an inherent madness and risk in being too safe. Because if you make something too safe, it starts to turn into, well, you took the risk of not doing anything at all, right? Of opening your mouth and no words came out. You were so safe that you didn't make a game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I would tend to agree with that for sure, where... It can be when you're spending $200 million on a game, it can be crippling to the fact like, how are we going to make that money back? Um, okay, we need to include these. Like, uh, I think multiplayer was like a huge craze. Like, has, you have to include multiplayer in your game. Yeah, it was hilarious. How many games had to tack on multiplayer that no one played? So Joshua Rogers writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and guest. I've noticed that a lot of the games that I play try to do very similar things, like have cosmetics you can buy, try to be always online, have an open world. Do you think this type of consolidation is something we're going to see more of? I don't think every game is going to be like this, but as far as the cosmetics you can buy, I think those are probably staying, at least for the time being. Open world seems to be somewhat trending downwards. I don't think open world will be something we see in the future. It's all about, I know I'm kind of going back to like the economic reasons of games, but it all goes like what is working, what is making us the most money right now? That's cosmetic microtransactions, having multiplayer and having like multiplayer that tries to keep you on the hook for as long as possible. Not just putting it in, but trying to make maintain your attention while you're playing it. I think as these tri- and these are only trends that have been discovered recently. I think as you see different aspects of games or features of games or monetization methods of the game catch on, you see those being included in a lot of those high production value, huge AAA, like millions of dollars of development titles because they want to make sure they get their investment back. So it's, I think it'll be a continual feeling out process of this work, this doesn't work. This used to work. This no longer works. Let's try this. Let's try that. Just like throwing, seeing what sticks on the wall, basically. Josh Law writes in and says, how do you feel loot boxes have affected the gaming industry, specifically the quality of games overall and player enjoyment? Do you feel like some games, like, for example, Shadow of War, were ruined by their inclusion? To which I'll add on, I liked Shadow of Mordor. I never got Shadow of War because I heard the loot boxes ruined the game. I think you see a lot of 
I don't know if we can say a lot of, but I think many people share your opinion to where, and even me to an extent where if I see a game has loot boxes in a single player game, I I'm very turned off by it. I don't want that experience of feeling like I need to earn these things or need to purchase them. Um, but loot boxes have heavily influenced in, like they're trying to figure out how to sell you more loot boxes right now. They're pushing back on laws and legislation being made. And there's huge gaming lobbies that are trying to make sure yeah. that nothing like this gets considered gambling or banned for children because of just how profitable and lucrative these loot boxes can be not only in multiplayer games, but again, something that turns you and I off in single player games. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, how those affect the co- it really turns me off yeah. too like when they like like you'll play a single player game and you'll be like picking up gold gold but then one thing will be like diamonds again in far cry <laughs> i think and you know diamonds are like gold except you can pay for them yeah as far as affecting the quality of games overall and player enjoyment it really is a case by case basis and implementation based and your honestly your threshold for those sort of things there's certain games none are coming to mind but that i can look past the loot boxes because i think actually gears of war 5 i know we gave that monster example earlier but the loot boxes at least for me aren't that attractive and i'm mostly playing gears 5 right now for the horde mode so it doesn't really bother me that now, do I like the fact that in Gears 3 i could earn all my cosmetics yes but that's just not the state of the industry anymore um and i hated i think pain for map packs is honestly worse than cosmetic loot packs just because of how much it segments mm. your player base and usually ends up killing your game way earlier than it should have um so in that light i think having ways to pay for your servers for a game that don't segment your user base. Now, when you get killed by someone with a cool looking skin, you're just like, oh, and he has a cool looking skin. He paid money. Like, I'm better than him because I didn't have to pay money for my game. I think it's. I don't know. I think he killed yeah. it. I think he's better. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just the different monetization models will always evolve over time. I do think for certain multiplayer games, the loot boxes are better. So loot, cosmetic loot boxes, not pay to win loot boxes, but the cosmetic loot boxes yeah. are a better solution than the map pack. But I don't necessarily think that loot boxes or um, in-game monetization for multiplayer games and sometimes single player games is in its final form yet. I think it's always going to be ever changing. Well, yeah, and that was the next point I had, which we're getting into, is when it comes to microtransactions, $70 versus $40 games, subscription services, free-to-play, in-game ads, which of these are sustainable? Like, like, well, I think here's the best way to ask the question. Uh, you know, so let me count them. Microtransactions, one, 70 or 40 you know, just get different game prices, subscription service, free-to-play, and then in-game ads. So I guess five different things. Like, how would you, if you were making... Uh, 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 like an open world RPG, how would you be trying to make that money back? Would you be one of those people that advocates, you know what, just make it $70 and give them all of the all of the things they could ever want? Or would you say make it $40, but then you have to buy premium DLC packs? Or do you, would you try to make it more towards the free-to-play? Like, how would you design like a standard open world game, you know, to make its money back? I think it definitely depends 
like how much you've invested in the game when you think you'll be able to get recurring revenue, whether that's through like subscriptions, uh, microtransactions, or the sequel. Like if you're planning to, I'm just going to put this $70 stamp on the game and that is it. Is that enough money to not only give me a return on the development cost of the game I just released, but is that enough to help fund the next game and the next game after that? Those are kind of factors you have to take into account when you're at a developer, at a publisher. As far as me personally, I like the idea of paying more upfront, whether that's 70, 80, 90. I, it depends yes, on the game, right? But I think that also becomes cost prohibitive as far as you go. Like, I think maybe now, depending on the value of the dollar, I think maybe in 10 years we can do a push to 80, but just the number 80. Like, in Ca- I live in Canada, games are $80. Um, PS5 games, or sorry, PS5 games are ninety dollars. For some reason, Godfall is ninety three dollars here. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, awesome. it's just like, oh man, paying that a little bit extra to experience Godfall. Well, it has ray tracing, yeah. so I yeah, mean, exactly, it's worth the extra three dollars. It's the perfect launch game. Um, and I've kind of talked to friends just in Canada, like, hey, and I know in some countries this is the case, but paying one hundred dollars for a game. Uh, yeah, in Australia, yeah. like I've heard 120 has been there for yeah, a while. Yeah, exactly. Like that, I think for American consumers, I think that becomes a huge turnoff. And $100 is something that's very tangible in people's mind. Like there's a reason why things are $99.99. Um, my, what I would do is probably do like the $70, $80 and have some non intrusive microtransaction thing. Not because I want to be greedy and just like get all the money. I'm kind of talking as if I were to run a studio. It's just more, how can I? That's fine though, because we have to be honest. This is somewhat of our opinion. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're playing armchair. Yeah, exactly. Very armchair. Um, But I would want to make sure that I, if the game's great, and first of all, making a great game, but making sure that it's, I'm doing it in a sustainable way to where if I have people depending on their salary from me, I'm going to be able to pay their salary for the next five years after I drop this one game. I think the way you do it is whatever the market price of a game is, I'd be interested to see actually like a cyberpunk releasing for like a, like what happens there. I was going to say, like, I know some people wouldn't pay this much, but I pay, I pay, you know, I pay a hundred dollars for Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, exactly. Too. I I probably do that as well. Maybe you wouldn't if you're listening. I yeah. would. You know, I would. And I think people have definitely done that with like there. We're also not factoring deluxe editions and digital advanced editions. Yeah. There's Red Dead Online, which makes a lot of money. There's different ways of charging. I think games have been charging more than the price tag you see on a game for a long time. It's just optional and as long as it does stay optional and it's not begging you on it's for like to be frank ethical if it's ethical monetization (laughs) where again like i wouldn't want someone who has 70 dollars um can't play my 80 dollar game like that would feel really bad i think that feels bad for a lot of people i think most people are there some people are in that scenario where they had $60 to buy a game on Christmas the, uh, for whatever reason they could afford a co- new console, 
but now they don't have like that extra 10 to just go with the $70. I think that kind of starts happening where if you allow these microtransactions to happen and you have people that are willing to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these microtransactions to kind of even out the playing field, you create a sustainable development. I'm not talking the most profitable. Um, have to look more into like, mm-hmm. hey, is $70 sustainable for developers that take five years on games? Like, is like if they sell X amount of copies, can they fund? I haven't dove too much into that, but I think those are like all the factors that kind of would go into my decision of like a $70 game, whatever the baseline is for a game, as well as having these non-intrusive ethical microtransactions. Yeah, I mean, I think the way I would answer this is it obviously, like you're saying, first make a good game, you know, and then I think what you got to, what you should go into is, is just stop thinking about how much you need to add to the game to make it worth the 60 or the $70. Like when I look at some of these, you know, more linear first person shooters, and you'll you'll know, you know, you know when you play some of these games and it's like, all right, now we're to the boss. Oh, the door's jammed. You got to go back to cell block, blah, 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 to open it up. And it's like, you just did this so that I waste 10 minutes that so you can say it's a 20-hour game. That's the <laughs> only reason you did this. Padding, yeah. That's not always true. Sometimes there's a reason, but it is. And I'm like, why don't you do this? Why don't you remove the padding why don't you stop wasting money on adding these and all of the man hours adding these side missions I don't want to play? Make a $40, you know, 15 hour, 20 hour game. Make it a $40 game and just remove the crap no one wants to play and just make it good for $40. And then instead of worrying about this DLC, just make a standalone sequel that takes a year less to make. I think there's a lot of games where they should be doing that. And then, you know, I think there's other games where, like we've said, you know, like maybe a Cyberpunk or Red Dead Redemption 2, where you're like, this can cost $70. It's out of your face. It's out of your way. But it should be. It should just be an expensive, big open world game that you buy and you own. And I'm sorry, like if there was some point I was riding my horse in the single player and it's like, we just came across these diamond chests, which means if you pay extra money, to, <laughs> like that would so take me out of the experience to see that, that I would want to throw my, I'd want to just, you know, throw my disc in the oven and turn it to broil. Like, like, what are you doing? You just compl- like, could you imagine like Kratos in a game? Just like, nice. I got diamond chests. Like that'd be the dumbest thing on earth. There are some games where that works and there are just some games where it doesn't. And then you just need to decide, well, is this a $70 game? Then sell it for that. If it's not stop wasting development time, stop wasting six months of the development time, padding it out and just start on the sequel sooner. I think that's something that we're not seeing nearly enough people do. And yeah, when it comes to, you know, in-game ads, only works in some games, and, when it, and you just have to deal with that. And then when it comes to, you know, I mean, paid, you know, free, to, you know, the skins online crap, as long as I can unlock a few skins to, unlock, to customize myself, I don't care if other people are, are running around with skins. Although I have to say that I am getting a little tired of the Fortniteization of some games where it's like, so it really makes sense. This guy just has a green mohawk and a pink gun. It kind of makes this modern military shooter look stupid all of a sudden. Yeah, I 
definitely like how Sony is playing around with price points and game lengths. Like with Miles Morales, I really enjoyed my experience with it, not because it was necessarily cheap, just because it was cheaper, although that definitely makes like it's a very attractive proposition to say this Spider-Man game does not cost as much as the last one. Um, that that we just finished it in two years, and we're instead yeah instead of working an extra year adding useless mm-hmm. side missions, we're going to sell it for fifty and release it sooner. Well, I just come on guys, like just yeah, do that. I, I like seeing price points being investigated. Not every game have not have this arbitrary benchmark of this is what you have to do to make your game cost seventy. I think some bigger AAA developers are third parties are less likely to do that for their franchises just because they, you, I think in their mind, they feel like they risk the value in the franchise so that when they do release a game that they feel is worth $70, which they should always do. But let's say the previous entry was 50 and now they're trying to sell you 70 that could like that could potentially create an unforeseen problem for them and they like it just might be a risk mm. assessment where hey we don't want to do this to this specific franchise but i think overall just investigating price points a little bit more can help alleviate a lot of financial worries and perhaps some of these microtransactions loot boxes that people are seeing in especially in free to play games um but overall just different monetization monies making development costs back that all can definitely be investigated more and adjusted on a game by game basis. Miles writes in and says with the splintering of how Microsoft and Sony are, will be delivering their first party exclusives, uh, games pass versus $70 with no microtransactions. Did anything you found in player habits research show which of these approaches might be the one that wins out? Or is it mainly going to matter about the quality of games in the end rather than the price? Also, do you think the subscription model will grow on PC if Microsoft succeeds? Services like EA Play have not really been taken by PC players yet. Which, yeah, which tells you why they partnered mm-hmm. with Microsoft. Because it yeah. was unsuccessful. They need to yeah. partner with Microsoft. Yeah, exactly. That's nothing really in the research that I did kind of showed an attitude towards the subscription base versus the $70 price. So this is just kind of more going off a personal opinion than any type of research I actually conducted myself. You're not disproving it. You're saying there just isn't info to suggest either way. I think that's, this is going to be something we have an answer to by the end of this generation, just to see Mm -hmm. is game pass rewarding financially for Microsoft to continue or are they going to go back to releasing $70 games or maybe they do this balancing act of you have your game pass subscription now that you, and they've actually kind of already done a little bit of this, but instead of having to pay full price for this game, you pay 40. Um, and you also are paying your subscription. So you get access to these deals. I think they, they have already kind of started playing around with that idea with game pass, but I don't necessarily know what players are going to respond best to. I know, like me personally, as soon as that Bethesda deal mm-hmm. got announced with Game Pass, that basically confirmed that I'm going to be a Game Pass member in perpetuity. Not because, like, oh, I love Bethesda. It's just more a commitment to 
a certain level of quality that spoke to me to where if I've been able to get yeah, Game Pass... four years when Bethesda makes their next game. <laughs> oh, I would, yeah. I'd say three, and then maybe like you get Elder Scrolls at like the end of the console gen. But I think that's worth emphasizing when you talk about the Bethesda deals. It's like, yeah, that doesn't mean Elder Scrolls is coming out next year. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to also note that it's not just like Bethesda Game Studios. They also have like id, the, the Doom games, as well as Arcane. They have stuff going on there that they'll probably that streaming tech that they'll be able to make some of their money back on. Um, but as again, like I've been getting Game Pass on sale, like in Canada, ten dollars, like basically at a level of like seven dollars a month US, eight dollars a month US. Now that sale price is definitely not sustainable for Microsoft to do. But I just it's not even. I mean, do yeah, the math, exactly. and I've said it on the podcast a bazillion times multiply the amount of users times ten dollars a month it's enough to pay for like two triple a games a year and somehow they're also going to have all of these uh-huh. other games they're paying to have on there it, they need they need to charge way more for this to be sustainable or something i don't know right like let's be clear you know when people say oh they announced it's it, they're not turning a profit from it yet right and eventually they're going to need to or it will yeah pay. i think you'll probably see a, a price creep like you have with netflix I know Netflix's tiers are based mm-hmm. upon like how many users can use your account as well as like the streaming quality. Potentially, maybe on Game Pass, you get locked out of certain games. I, I don't have any information on that. That's just pure speculation. Yeah. But as far as for myself, I kind of see it as, okay, this is about the price of two AAA games. Am I expecting to play two games or that monetary value on game pass within the next year. And for next year, for me, it was, yes. So it was, it was like an easy thing for me to do because not only do I get the games that I was going to pay for, but I also have the ability to expose myself to new games as well. And it's just a better value. Uh, I'm one of those people that once I play a game, I'm usually done with it though. I don't know how. I think yeah. that's most people, especially the older you get. Yeah. So I think that model, that Game Pass model, speaks to people. Now, on the other end, are those, like, what are you after? Like, are you after, like, a Sony-type game? Are you after some the next game from Insomniac, from Santa Monica, from Naughty Dog? Sony has found out that charging that $70, or before $60, but $70 price on a game, plus you're buying your console, that is what is working for them and they're sticking with it personally well and if if they make more money doing that then they can afford to make more games to pull you in yeah exactly and just because a lot of the sony games first party games speak to me i'm more than happy to kind of fall in line and just pay what they're asking me to do because i want to see more of that um and i and to be fair i also want to see more of game pass like i want the promise of game pass to kind of live up to what it can be um, I think, but I'm just one person. It definitely depends on who you are, what you like. It's, it's going to be something that will have a clear idea of what actually ended up winning out in five years, five, probably eight years, like end of console journey. It'll be like, Oh, game pass was something that Sony should have adopted in 2020. That's a pretty good deal. All right. So here's my question then. If it was $20 a month, would you keep it? The way I play... So if I was paying 20 in perpetuity, that's tougher to swallow, right? 
now I have to justify. So I, but yeah, I'm playing exactly. a game. So when's your, when's your breaking point? Is your breaking point at 20, 25? Because that's what I'm wondering. Because right now, and this actually, and I've got a couple of links that I'll add in the description. This actually blew my mind. I addressed someone in the comments on a podcast with NX Gamer where he goes, you know, Games Pass is a huge money maker, And I'm like, it's not, actually. <laughs> it's not making money. And I didn't realize that the PlayStation Wing, I always knew it was the biggest, the most important part, probably at this point for Sony, but I, I didn't under, know that it was making almost 10 times as much money as all of Xbox's services wow. combined. So how does Games Pass compete with that, my friend, when Sony can afford to... Because I've covered this on recent podcasts. I'm not kidding. They plan to possibly release a PlayStation exclusive every month next year. And they're doing so from a position of having plenty of money to fund more every month for years to come. I don't know that Games Pass is ever going to make enough money to do that unless they double or triple the price. And you said you would cancel. I think so. I think it's going to be hard for anyone to justify. Yeah, yeah, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I also have Games Pass. But anyone to justify a subscription price that is more than the subscription prices are already paying. So for me, that would mean I wouldn't pay more than like a Netflix subscription. And I think for 10 to 15, 15, I think that's a reasonable expectation of like consumers. Now I think Netflix is going to keep like price creeping over time continually, especially with the amount of original content they're producing now. Um, Like Amazon prime has had like the price creeps as well. Um, right, but Amazon has shows like, you know, The Night Manager, The Boys, you know, a bunch of other shows people like. Netflix has Stranger Things and Ozark. These are award-winning shows. Like, this is, I think, almost competitive with HBO's caliber of shows, or it's getting there. And so it's like, but is is Microsoft doing that yet, though? That's the question. If they were, see, here's here's the question I've been thinking of lately. If they were making something on the caliber of like Metal Gear Solids and Gods of Wars, then okay, everyone would subscribe to Games Pass probably even for $15, $20 a month, especially if they had like four or five of those AAA Mm -hmm. games a year. But can they do that? It's a chicken and egg situation. Are they ever going to have enough money to do that? You see what I'm saying? So I just think there are some inherent... Because if you watch my videos earlier this year, I had a lot of pro Games Pass videos come out where I thought this was the future. And now, it's, and, I, and I have Games Pass, so I'm not saying that I don't think it could be the future, but now I'm starting to feel this contrarian streak inside of me where I'm like, you know, I think people are acting like it's, I think, I think it could be the future, but I think too many people are acting like it's inevitable when there are some pretty clear red flags in the business model. I think with the purchase of Bethesda, Microsoft has shown that they're willing to take huge risks. If they paid more for Bethesda mm-hmm. than they, like Disney paid for Star Wars, like that's yeah, they paid it's double, insane. And I, yeah. <laughs> I think Microsoft <laughs> yes. again does see Google and Amazon as their true competition, and I don't think that really mm-hmm. comes to a head until like 10, 15 years from now. I think they're just playing like an incredibly mm-hmm. long game to where they're planning out. Like, I think they, this is going to probably, again, tortures are going to come out with that, but I think they've probably conceded that Sony is going to win like any type of hardware race. So Phil Spencer has just been like, okay, like where's, 
how do we win the next battle? And I don't think he, Phil Spencer personally has that, uh, that type of like, we have to win mindset, at least from the interviews I've read. He's a very considerate. He wants people just to play games. At least that's what he puts out into the world. But I do believe he is preparing Xbox for in 10 years, 15 years now, where any any type of gaming hardware is very niche because it's like a TV app. It's something that's just integrated into whatever display you happen to have in front of you. Um, I, that is, I think that is the Xbox play right now. And before then, they just have things in the market right now that are going to carry them so that they stay relevant in the gaming space until that time. Mm. But they they have started preparing and they have been preparing for a while for that. I think that is going to become the eventual future. My point is this. I think it's premature to say there will be a winner or a loser mm-hmm. at all yet. For all we know, you know, I don't know. When you boot up the PS5, it gives you 20 free PS4 games. For all we know, Sony is going to do some hybrid solution. For all we know, Microsoft is either going to scale it up or scale it back down. I, I don't, I think it's just premature to declare anything as inevitable yet because the data doesn't suggest that anything is inevitably happening on yeah, either side. And especially when we're talking 10, 15 years out, it's, hard to say anything for certainty it's just very much a wait and see yeah andy crawley writes in and says thanks for coming on so lately i've had a problem staying interested in games long enough to finish them they're mostly fun for the first half of the game but if i have to take a break like work can be really busy i don't play for a few days at a time and i end up having to force myself to go back to the game the end seems almost grinding to try to finish have you seen trends like this and how have developers tried to fix this situation by the way for the record, I'm 32 years old with two kids and a normal job and gaming all my life. The habits of mine only recently came up about since like six years ago. Thanks. I, this is actually something that a lot of people listening can do themselves just to kind of get an idea of just game completion in general and these like huge open world or time consuming games, like how many people have actually finished. And it's just to kind of on PlayStation, it's trophy completion or how many people have gotten a certain trophy and on yeah. Microsoft its achievements, I always kind of like go into the back end and be like, okay, how many people beat Sekiro? Like how many people have beaten Demon's Souls by this date? It's, that's something that you can also kind of verify yourself and just kind of see anecdotally. Overall, most people do not finish games. Um, an anomaly in modern times has actually been Spider-Man, which not only had like a super high completion percentage, but also a very high and a very high platinum completion percentage. And those things, again, that's very rare for a game, but they would kind of go more into a case study about Spider-Man. But the general trend is most people do not finish games or they take a very long time to finish a game because, like um, Andy said, they're busy. They have families, they have responsibilities, they have a job. Maybe like I, I work with people that have two hours a week to play games on a Sunday when their kids are out of the house and they're doing whatever they are with friends. Yeah. A lot like that's not it's more gaming is there for when you can do it. And a lot of games have that in mind. 
But that being said, I've experienced this a few times to where I completely forget a game and then I'm having to jump back in and relearn mechanics and like relearn where I was in the story. And it's that can be very frustrating. Yeah, I was like a fourth into Sekiro. I can't imagine going back to Sekiro. It's just so daunting. <laughs> I'm only a fourth in, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, I have to go back and train with that one guy for like 10 minutes and then hopefully remember in what direction I'm supposed yeah, to go. I mean, you know, let me say, I I just think that if a game isn't, hopefully you have a disposable income. So I understand the argument of, well, I paid for this and I want to beat it. But I would just say to a certain extent, I think you've got to um, just be okay with not finishing games. And the older I get, the more I'm like, nope, play Assassin's Creed Odyssey for 20 hours. Done, done. Too bad. Like, I don't want to play that. I want to go play, you know, I just got Wolfenstein Youngblood, even though I have a backlog of 10 games. And so I'm just, I just, I'm making my peace with it that as I get older, I have less time. And so because my time's more precious, I'm not going to force myself to finish games. Yeah, exactly. It's okay to like wait, like don't get games instantly, wait for a sale if you kind of have a vibe from it or just stop playing the game. It's games are supposed to be fun. And if you're not having fun with a game anymore, Hey, mm-hmm. it's okay. You can go to something else. Yeah. So we've been going for a very long time here. I think what I what I'll do is say let's just pick up the pace and try to. I think we actually covered almost everything already. You've probably yeah. noticed that I've been crossing off certain questions because we already answered them. Um, let's let. But let, we got a few more. Let's kind of power through here. And I might paraphrase some of them. Yeah, so my Sharona writes in, which, you know, very cheeky <laughs> name there. And he asks, you know, basically why, you know, we are seeing Sony run game, the PS5 run games as well as the Xbox Series X and frame rates. And most of the next gen games, it loads games faster, quite a bit faster in some of them, percentage wise. I mean, you know, it's usually percentage wise, not ultimate time wise. Um, you know, why didn't Xbox consider this? And I think I think it's less about like because because the way he asked the question seems to be like why didn't someone warn Xbox? And I just don't think that's how uh-uh. it works, right? I think they have different design goals, they have different ways of designing consoles. People have noticed actually maybe on my board that says AMD versus Microsoft as a subject for months, and there is a story that I think I am going to be ready to tell in a few months about some behind-the-scenes things that went on between AMD and Microsoft, just so everyone knows. But I, I think, how, how can you speak to just the general idea? I think let's move past the SSD, but like the methodology and how, like have you noticed from talking to develop, some of your friends who are developers or working at a AAA studio, the methodology that goes into how they design their hardware, the differences and how they think about designing them? I haven't been exposed to how each console manufacturers handles their own hardware development. A lot of the times, especially in AAA, you just kind of presented with, hey, this is what we came up with. Um, mm-hmm. To kind of speak to the decisions being made about what's included and what's not included, that usually comes from first party. But as kind of far as working with developers and each kind of console manufacturer, it does shift. Like typically, and this is really only reading into things from the PS4 generation, but Sony seems, and I think they're actually exhibiting this a little bit right now too with PS5, but they 
are very interested in developers and indies at the very early stages of a console release, like first year or two. And then they slowly, as the consoles mature and they're hitting sales numbers, they kind of drift away. Um, and I think what ended up happening with PS4 generation is actually Microsoft swooped in a little bit and be like, when Sony was kind of letting the ball go a little bit and started investing more and become more interested in developers. And kind of part of that reason is Game Pass. They want to upsell Game Pass, get the developers on Game Pass. But I think you're also seeing that happen a little bit more into this generation to where, yes, Sony has become more interested in indies again and has been offering support, but Microsoft didn't really ever stop showing developer support. And at least from my anecdotal experience, Microsoft actually does all a little bit more than Sony to help. Seems like lately, yeah. Yeah, they've definitely become uh, a much more developer-friendly company than they have definitely from the start of the Xbox One generation. And that's really good for those smaller developers. That's really good for getting unique games out there. Um, And it's going to be interesting to see if they keep their attention and when Game Pass is succeeding or Game Pass starts to fail, and then they start pushing away developers again. It's going to be an interesting landscape. So, I mean, you, but but I guess to go back to the question he asked, though, you're basically just saying, like, it, it, it's just, they just have different ways of coming to a conclusion of what the console should be, right? There was no big, uh, and I've seen people ask this before, there was no big, like, espionage to hide the SSD from Microsoft or how they were designing things. It's just, and I'll just speak for myself, speaking to some developers that basically Sony just insisted on going with some architectural choices and Microsoft kind of insisted on others. Yeah, I can't, again, I, from my experience, I've never been exposed to third-party developers having that big of an impact, perhaps it would swing like maybe they had more of a say in it. Oh, sometimes they have actually. Uh, the PS4's amount of RAM came from uh, Gearbox. They said you will put eight gigabytes in the PS4 if you want to win. And yeah, similar so, thing happened from what from Cliff Blazinski in the 360. Yeah, I remember the Cliff example where they're like, "You need this amount of RAM, RAM to run Gears of Wars. It's not going to run or something like that in the Xbox." But so there is precedent for them kind of considering what developers want out of the next gen, but it's very much up to what makes it into the final build by, by those different console manufacturers. So let me see here. I guess this is a fun one. Maybe we can answer quickly. Connor Horry writes in and says, Hi, Tom. And guess my question is simple, and I hope you guys can expand on it. What do you think are the biggest weaknesses of the PS5 and Xbox Series X menus, and what should they improve? It feels like both haven't made much development in UI this generation. Do you think this was a missed opportunity? I think both the PS5 for sure feels like a V1 to me, just because mm. there's so many, in terms of UX, so many rough edges, such as the muscle memory of holding down the PS button to turn off the console. Um, when you press, when you tap the PS button to bring up that task menu, it not actually focusing in on those um, quick settings, but it focuses in on the cards. A double tap opening up a card directly 
I think they do have to kind of push the cards because uh, they're trying to push the cards a little bit because of how much investment there is. But there's just, there's definitely some things that I've noticed from using a lot of the PS5 at this point where it gets clunky. And I think over time, they kind of proved this with PS4. Over time, a lot of those um, quirks will just get ironed out and you won't have to worry about them in perpetuity. Um, but some improvements, I think the PS Store being included in PS5 is really, really nice. It's yeah. super responsive uh, it, now. It was so dumb having a store app. Now it just it's just in the menu, and it's not annoying. It's not not it, you know like seems like a common sense thing they should have done a long time ago in hindsight. But they, maybe the console wasn't strong enough. I don't know. Yeah, the separation of games and media. Like there's some things that they are trying out that do seem to improve the overall user experience, but there's still like those rough edges. And I think some oversights to just, they probably did not expect like that hold the PS button for power off to be like, I have to say that is a boneheaded choice. I still screw up pressing down and, and on paper, it's like, uh, why would it be an issue? You press the PlayStation button and then there's this mini menu to turn it off. But it used to be I press it a long time. I don't know why they changed that. Yeah. Um, with the Series X menus, I believe they're the same as the One X. I had a lot of experience with the One X and just kind of mm-hmm. just peaked at the Series X. They seem fairly comparable. I think Sony took like the idea of the integrated... Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but they kind of took the idea of the integrated store from Microsoft. Um, I think the way... Microsoft handles a lot of their, what I would call advanced settings. Um, They're, at least in my experience, a little bit more clear than Sony's. Um, They're a little bit more user-friendly. So here's what I would say. I would say that I agree that the PlayStation 1 feels more like a V1, but I also think the V1 is overall much better than the ps4s to be honest like the sub menus for settings are in my opinion way clearer to get through than the ps4 where the ps4's sub menus were kind of just in a a random order like i honestly don't know like i actually think the menu for the ps5 is overall really good but at the same time it is a v1 in that it's like well right here maybe this should have the drop down for every game. Do this, and you know. So I, I don't know, right? I actually like what, and I like what they did, especially kind of separating the menu into a game section. Then you press R one, you just switch to the media version of the menu. You switch between Hulu and YouTube and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that was something that should have been done a long time ago, actually. So, so I'd say overall, it's actually much easier to use in most parts of the menu. There are just some parts where it's like, this is weird. I don't know why they did this. Yeah. I definitely, yeah, and for sure. I do overall think Xboxes is a little bit user-friendly, but I am going off of mm-hmm. memory. I don't have a Series X. Um, I don't know if you have a Series, Series X. Series X menu works, you know. I just yeah, exactly. Don't, it's I think functional it and works. I just think that there are some fundamental changes to the menu that would make more sense. And I assume both of them are going to update it, so... Yeah, exactly. Like these are what the consoles launch with. If you look at any example over time, they dramatically change uh, what the UI looks like, usually within a year or two. Uh, definitely on the Microsoft side, a little less so on the Sony side, but it's just more a story of refinement. I think a lot of the quirks that people are hung up on will be alleviated 
over time. They won't be there in perpetuity, but uh, gotta wait and see. Clean Sweep writes in and says, for AAA developers, are things like forums, like on Steam or something, and game-specific subreddits the best conduit for getting information to and from game devs? If not, is there even such a thing? Especially when devs' community managers have to shift through tons of posts of highly variable quality. Yeah, Variable quality is one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very um, PC way of putting that. Um, definitely reviews are a way that you always get... Developers always pay attention to reviews and read the reviews, especially the negative ones. Um, also, with like the social media posts, and just like the response after games out, they pay attention to a lot, which is I think why you see when a game does not meet expectations or it sh- like ships with bugs or there's an outcry by the community that probably pre-ordered the game that, hey, this thing you promised is not what you promised. A lot of the developers look at that information. Um, ongoing games, those community managers are constantly giving information to the development team and what the community wants. As far as those things get enacted, still has to go through like the normal vetting process within even just a corporation period. But social media is definitely from, this is people telling me their experience of like before and after, just because I was also interested in this. Like how did we get information before sub like, subreddits and social media and how are we getting it now it has definitely highlighted the vocal minority but in some aspects knowing what people are just saying about your game also helps a lot and whether you make a decision based on that it's totally something separate but a lot of these developers are reading everything which is try to be constructive with criticisms because you are probably Someone who has a family and has worked years on a game is seeing exactly what you're putting out there. So I think uh, be, be constructive and polite in criticisms is something that I would also like to ask for <laughs> for some comments as well. <laughs> you know, when it comes to feedback, I've noticed Dice. I think I, I just think it seems to be different depending on the studio. Like Dice seems to do a good job with their. They have a subreddit where they really they've answered my questions. Like they they're pretty good. That's great. Um, uh, but that's not all subreddits. Um, and then, you know, there's like developers like from software where it's impossible to talk to them about <laughs> anything, like to the point that it's ridiculous. But then there's, you know, Guerrilla Games did some interesting thing with Shadowfall where they made a feedback website where you had so many points you could spend to give feedback a month. And if you suggested good feedback that was upvoted by others, you got more points. Interesting. And and uh, I, I remember that too because they, I got the most upvoted one one month and they made my weapons pack idea in, in the oh. game. So that was one that uh, I, I felt like I was completely part of helping them steer the game, you know? And I think it's just, I don't know, right? It, it just depends on the studio. They all handle it differently. And some of them, like from software, are impossible to talk to. And some of them, like Gorilla and Dice, are very easy to have a dialogue with. Yeah, exactly. It all kind of studio by studio, publisher by publisher, community manager by community manager. The final question I have here, at least as a bullet point, is one that I brought up to you before and one that I brought up to my Patreon members is it's like, get a game dev on, get a game dev on. And it's like, you guys, while I have sources that are game devs, 
none of them will go on the record, you know, almost ever. It's not like if someone, you know, works for even anonymously, like the server engineer is willing to go on the record eventually. You know, some people that work at like AIB is like I had Sapphire Ed, you know, from, you know, he came on, you know. But when it comes to game devs, none of them want their voices on the record. You are the closest we've been able to get. <laughs> you know, wh- why do you think that is? It definitely comes down to livelihood. There is, like, I know friends at certain studios. Some studios are a little bit more lax and give some rope. Other studios, it's if, like a word or anything and they have people like constantly reviewing stuff it's your like gone like it has a lot to do with worrying about your job like are you going to be able to make money when comments that you've made come out like um there is i think some uh a story that we were talking about with a crytech engineer before we started recording where he he talked about both consoles and this was in april of this year and he said hey guys based on the dev kits we're using the playstation 5 seems to be outperforming the xbox slightly in most third-party games and he got a huge slap on the wrist wrist it seems for saying that publicly everyone you know all the fanboys attacked him for it and yet lo and behold here we are at the console's launch and that seems to be the truth you know (laughs) I think it's because if you ask me, it's like you're just going to piss off Microsoft or piss off Sony. I mean, with that I don't one, know. Yes. yeah, with that example specifically, it's you don't want to affect the relationships you have with one console manufacturer because you have comments you made about the other one. You don't want to be seen playing favoritism when you're Crytek on an individual level. It's more, I don't want my job jeopardized, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and then you and it's just weird because this whole year we've seen fanboys clinging to, like I none of my sources are Sony or Microsoft. Yeah, none none of them are Microsoft or Sony devs. You know, some people assume they are because I reported some things that were construed as being supporting one side or the other. I'm just reporting the news, um, so I don't have anyone from Sony. But and you don't see anyone. And but but that's the annoying thing because then publicly on Twitter, only the Sony devs are the ones saying the best things. But of course they are. They work for Sony, right? They're of course they're saying good things about the PS5. So it's hard to trust that. And the, but then you see people blowing out of proportion, like the Sony Liverpool devs, which Sony closed the Liverpool studio eight years ago for underperforming. I wouldn't be listening to people from there, by the way, guys. Like, it, and it just becomes a pile of misinformation. It's very frustrating. Not having people that I talk to at Dice or you know Crystal Dynamic or some of these other third-party studios come on the record, it sucks, you know, because basically I have no way of proving I'm not a fanboy if no one will speak on the record. Yeah, exactly. Like it's kind of why um, the reason why I won't disclose the studio I used to work for. It's mostly has to do with am I revealing anything that could get me apprehended? A lot of developers, even to their friends that perhaps work at other studios or work at these console manufacturers, if like their friend sees a comment that they made, like using the example of that Crytek employee, like that can yeah, affect his, pers- yeah, his 
personal relationships could get affected by that comment reaching the, like someone else. So I think a lot of devs, and I shouldn't say it's this is like a blanket statement on why some devs will be willing to talk and some people won't. I think as far as like disclosing information about the console manufacturers and the inner workings, it'll always be very hard to get any type of those people on record. Um, but as far as kind of what we're almost doing here, where I would be surprised if a developer wouldn't be willing to come on and just kind of give their opinion on the industry without giving away any um, NDA information. Um, but as far as some might... Well, hey, if you want to and you're listening, uh, please reach out. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to challenge some of the things that we've discussed too, it'd be interesting as well, just to kind of hear other opinions. I think that's kind of a bigger takeaway for me. Like, I'd love to hear more developer opinions to whether they're the same as my developer friends, or if their experience at a studio is similar or different than mine. Um, we get that sometimes, but it's becoming, at least from what I've been seeing, a little bit more rare. I think we actually saw mm -hmm. a lot of it more a few years ago. Perhaps it's because we're in the middle of a console launch that we're seeing less of it, but I do want to yeah. hear about experiences and opinions of the people that are actually making the things we love to partake in and enjoy as a hobby. Yeah, all right. Well, truly the final question then. Gerard, the audio engineer for Moore's Law is Dead, emailed me a question and he asks, what is the one thing you wish more gamers knew about game development that would help us appreciate more of what you guys do? Game developers are not lazy ever. They, like, that is something every time I see it, it, yeah. I, I think before I was in the industry, I was just kind of, you kind of like jump on, sometimes you jump on the bandwagon, especially if you're younger, you're just like, oh yeah, this didn't get in this game. Like, how could you? But when you work in the industry and you're just exposed to your colleagues, like spending like hours and hours making sure that a test goes okay and you're spending hours making sure like just that like, this room's lighting looks correct yeah the room's <laughs> lighting looks correct you're want to make sure there's one bug that you've been trailing for weeks as results so like something like people experience the game how it's intended they by no means have i ever met a lazy game developer or has there ever i've been exposed to any type of lazy decision making everything is very intentional and although sometimes there's mistakes made calling someone especially a game developer lazy is just mildly inaccurate i still kind of cringe when i see it just because yeah. seeing them in practice is very illuminating too it, it's like this thing you see in. repeated in the comments constantly right just this whole thing of like well, remember, game devs are lazy. And, you know, the more I speak to game developers as sources, the more there's no point where he's like, hey, I'm going to be honest, it doesn't run well because fuck PC gamers. There's no point where someone said that or goes, it's because we hate Sony that this game runs this way. That's not how this works. You know, I've never heard any like there's always specific reasons a specific engine did this or that. And again, the best example I can come up with is when one person reached out to me about a year ago to explain like the development of several games and like goes through like, look, Look, the reason these PC ports, quote unquote, were bad is because we were designing 
for these $400 360s and PS3s that had six threads or more. And unfortunately, most PC gamers had dual cores. So we didn't know what to do with the game engine, especially when we knew quad cores were going to be standard in a few years. So we just did our best. We weren't lazy. Your PC just had a weaker processor. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't laziness, you know? That, and everyone said, well, that was a bad port or something. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I echo that. Game developers are not lazy. Please, if you're trying to give critiques and stuff to game developers, calling them lazy is a surefire way to make sure your point's never heard by them. <laughs> I bet that's the quickest way to turn them Very off much reading so. the rest of your message. Yeah, just because it shows a level of ignorance to where they, like, why would I consider someone's opinion that isn't even doing the legwork to investigate what I do for a living? Yeah, I, I, it'd, be, it'd be like if someone was, like, going to ask to give feedback on something and they opened up by saying something entirely incorrect and derogatory about your entire industry or something. Yeah, exactly. That's yes, that's very much what it is like. All right. Well, I do think that we've gone along as long as we can. There were some reader mails we didn't get to that I've thrown into the mailbag that I believe if I need to consult you, I will, or that I can answer myself. So don't worry if you didn't get your your question answered. Uh, we'll I'll get to it whenever we can in the die shrinks that follow this for patrons and otherwise. Um, I think even if we didn't directly say your question, I'm pretty sure we got to 90% of them uh, and did so over the course of what we'll see if this ends up being the longest episode after editing. I'm not sure, but we'll we'll find out. I would really like that record as far as a broken silicon episode. <laughs> well, you can tell. Well, no, now Gerard says you were trying to get that as a record, so you can speak. No, <laughs> no, I only started thinking about that when we had to do some extra technical setup. I was like, oh, this is, this might be one of them. This might be it. This might be the one that finally pushes it over. I think the first NX Gamer episode is still the longest running one. Um, but you know what? I think it was a good conversation. I think it was a nice breath of fresh air for me, actually. I'll just speak for myself. I'm just constantly talking about the hardware and actually talking about everything that we use the hardware for, which I think a lot of people this fall have lost sight of what they're getting the hardware to play the games um and uh yeah i mean you know uh thanks for coming on and uh i'm sure we'll speak again yeah absolutely thanks for having me big fan and keep doing what you're doing mm, i'll try the following podcast was brought to you by the youtube channel and website moore's laws dead moore's laws dead and broken silicon are trademarks of their creator tom that guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, 
the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law's Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Tello, Steen, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim Bollocks, Joshua Alvin, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasset, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil F., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegard, TSBCFS, Chrysantine, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy D. Saru, Daniel Hyde, Dave Kunky, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, VI Pass, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Gosner, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, Exodi, Hector Santana, Matthew Lane, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Rubber Duck, Street of Full, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Sean Grant, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Carrie Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K., Trevor Powers, Cyan Nora, Elena, Joshua Stavnis, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Carlos Feldas, Carnivore Bear, Macdo226, Saber Z Birds, Licky. Man Berzegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanadin, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquin Hagen, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Calm Marco, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Raul Abeneni, Master Andy Wan, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Deniscu, Dave McCoy, Valko Malev, Miss Sears, Paul Bogdan, Morton Spenson, Andrew Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Mose from Oz, My Sharona, Derek File, Roman, Jacob Stankiewicz, Jake Pym, Wakir Khan, JBG, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Charles Antoine Futeau, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, James Kitchens, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Dean Dispotsky, Paul J., My Name is Nobody, Ruben Marr, Luis Correa, John Jamison, Eshel, Dar Epstein, Luca, Anders, Bervin, Matthew Lazier, Tim Robbins, HardForum.com, Susanna Maria, Stu, Dystopiat, Arpit Sharma, and of course, thank you to Zahara for the music. 